You are now listening to the sound of Bernard Herrmann's awesome score for North by Northwest, which only gets repeated about 9,000 times in the course of the movie. Mm-hmm. Actually, you're not listening to that at all. I lied. You're listening to Sanity at the Movies, North by Northwest edition. A title, by the way, in case you didn't notice, dear listener, that makes no sense. I mean, it sort of makes sense because they go Northwest, but the, the title doesn't really mean anything. It's not thematically connected to anything the train i don't think is called the northwest is it Am there was northwest no. airlines at some point right yeah. they, they mentioned northwest airlines but apparently that was just the only hitchcock wanted to originally when he conceived of this movie he conceived of a movie where a man would end up in the nose of thomas jefferson and then be found by the bad guys when he sneezed so the working title of this movie was The Man in Jefferson's Nose or even The Man Who Sneezed in Jefferson's Nose. But uh. somehow, un- unfortunately <laughs> for the world, <laughs> that did not make it <laughs> to the final. Wow. <laughs> it's good to remember that Hitchcock just, he liked his jokes. Hitchcock <laughs> did like his jokes. I don't know if you noticed that in this movie. <laughs> I did not. Hitchcock we may be it. running from bad guys and they may be around every corner, but we're going to get our quips in. We are going, yeah, well, yeah, um, this is a quippy movie, wonderfully so, I would say, for the most part. Anyway, guys, I guess we should introduce ourselves and talk about this film, a a film that we often allude to and have a lot recently, I think, maybe probably mostly because of James Bond, because it's, this is definitely a precursor. Very proto James Bond. Yeah, and released four years before Dr. No, unless my memory of dates deserts me, which it may. Dr. No, I think is 63, and I know this movie is 59. 59. So, this movie, down to the way... 62. 62, okay, so just three years. But this movie is so influential on the Bond franchise. The suits, I mean, specifically, just just even the way that Cary Grant is dressed is very much the way that... What's his face? Sean Connery ended up dressing this particular kind of suit, the way, you know, the gray flannel. Anyway... Uh, that's all things we can talk about it but 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 first let's talk about who we are i'm nathan i'm your humble and obedient host you're listening to sanity at the movies that's ben he's the pastor who's a master of cinema right up there with i Brad didn't McCann. know that here i am yeah no, no no oh i'm sorry oh boy i stole it from jake yeah that's my title ben yeah no wonder I'm, i didn't know i'm that. sorry i'm gonna have to take it back i i should have anti-known that i mean yeah you can have it back unless you want to hold on to it i mean i cannot take it once i give but i'd like to humbly ask for it back because it really belongs to jake i, I humbly give it back okay all right ben is not and never has been the pastor who's a master of cinema actually i was for just a minute (laughs) you you were for a moment (laughs) (laughs) how did it feel yeah uh pretty good yep good yep yeah the master of master of cinema was getting a phone call and you chose to slide into his booth and it set off a chain reaction of mistaken identity and yeah yep no, the real pastor who's a master of the cinema. I guess I'll just go ahead and introduce him. It's Jake Menzel. That's me. Yeah. Uh, how hey. Are you, how are you doing, Jake? Okay. How are you? You run, run from any corn dusters? Corn dusters. Crop wow. dusters. Crop dusters lately? Nope. Don't see any crop dusters around here. No, it's not really a thing. It's not a thing. It's not a thing. I think I have seen in my life a crop duster before, like dusting a field, but it's been because I'm driving somewhere across this great land we call America and... Maybe out west somewhere. It's yeah. A thing. Yeah, but it's not like you're just driving along the Indiana cornfields from Evansville to Bloomington or something like that, and you suddenly see a crop duster. That crop duster was supposedly in Indi- in Indiana, but... That's right, that is Indiana. Yeah. Yeah, well... But 
and maybe that maybe there were in the 50s and 60s but ain't how we treat things nowadays around here ain't how we treat things nowadays although a crop duster did save america from the aliens if you guys remember yeah (sighs) jake why don't you introduce the person who we've we we accidentally stole your title and as a sign of regal graciousness why don't you introduce this person who tried to steal from you this is a turn of events yeah to be you know, sure to be sure it's okay i a lot of people try to steal from me yep i don't understand why they wouldn't want to mm-hmm. well. i have so much do you know how many podcasts there are where three guys talk about movies out there it, it's trying to be us yeah all stealing from us yeah this is Ben Sulcer. He is the preacher who's a teacher of cinema. Right. There we go. That sounds fitting. Yes. How are we doing, Ben? I'm all right. Have you run from any crop dusters lately? It's been a while. It's been a while. <laughs> it has. Yep. Not since I was a small child. Not since you were a small child. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> when you got mistaken for a secret agent. <laughs> oh, man. Was there ever a movie that had a more boring stretches of like exposition right in the middle where they're like, we're going to explain the same plot two or three times. Oh my goodness. Oh my goodness. <laughs> or just the boring expositional love scenes. It's like, well, well, I assume we're going to have a lot to say about those love scenes. Cause I think that's why this comes up frequently in our discussions, because this is one of our touch points for they had eroticism back before the nineties. If you weren't aware <laughs> In fact, they were rather better at it yeah. in some perverse ways. Just because they didn't show a lot of flesh doesn't mean they couldn't show a lot of something. Yeah. I think that's... It doesn't mean they couldn't be evocative. Doesn't mean they couldn't be evocative. That's true. This movie is nothing if not evocative. But we'll talk about that. This is, of course, our first Hitchcock. We have not managed to do a Hitchcock before. And we're coming out right out of the gate with a movie that was billed and conceived as the Hitchcock movie to end all Hitchcock movies. That's like what they were trying to write when they came up with the screenplay. So this movie was kind of thought of like the, I read the new, this very snooty New Yorker review and they're like, Hitchcock has, is finally parodying himself. You know, it's like Hitchcock's just doing all the Hitchcock tropes and he's stuffing them all into one movie from the icy cool blonde to the different, landmarks that have suspense scenes put around them to the case of wrongful identity case of wrongful identity is that a phrase no <laughs> it is now <laughs> it is now a case of mistaken identity to mistaken identity it's just like this is one big package of every trope every trick everything that hitchcock liked to do he did in this movie yeah we're starting with it. Maybe we'll work our way back to some more primal Hitchcock someday, like Notorious or Spellbound or The Wrong Steps or... I don't know. I assume if this podcast goes long enough, we'll do lots of Hitchcock because he's a master. But, and obviously, you know, you got to, if you're going to do a movie podcast, eventually you got to talk about Rear Window, Psycho, things like that. But North by Northwest is more likable than those. So we're starting here. Anyway, North by Northwest and Alfred Hitchcock. What baggage do you guys bring? the films of alfred hitchcock ben well aj (laughs) (laughs) yeah i I am tempted to respond as bj today in general (laughs) for whatever reason i I saw this as a little kid this particular movie or i saw parts of it i just remember i was a pretty little kid my mom fell asleep and i was watching cary grant 
climb out of the hospital window. So it was like, I remember the the most exciting to me. Yeah. The third, the final third, final fourth, final fifth of the movie. Right. Cary Grant climbs around the hospital building and then he climbs the bad guy's house in the dark and really fun. So that stuck in my mind as the thing. Yeah. And man, that house, we'll talk about that house, but that house rocks. That house anyway, is pretty awesome. Yeah. yeah. I, I don't know what other baggage I bring. I was raised knowing that Hitchcock was awesome for mm-hmm. whatever reason. I was told that. Right. And then we watched some movies. We watched Man Who Knew Too Much. We watched maybe not a lot else. I, I, I know I've seen a couple of other things. Dial in for Murder. We mm-hmm. watched Dial in for Murder. And at some point, this. Although maybe not the whole thing until I was a lot older. Now, that's an important thing to note is that Hitchcock is a household name and he's a household name particularly of our parents' generation. Everybody knows who Alfred Hitchcock is and they know what his brand is. He's a brand. And so, you know. Yeah. I mean, I've got, I think I have a volume of short stories at my house that are Alfred Hitchcock presents. Tales of suspense and mystery or something something like that. Yeah. I've seen those books around before. Yeah. I don't know how I came by it, but it's just like kind of thing anybody might have in their house right well he was a master of self-promotion and people people know who he is and uh, particularly our parents generation i don't know jake what's your baggage with old hitch not a lot i i mean i i know by hitch i mean the will smith movie if you can tell us all about your baggage (laughs) with you know it's sweet and is it i've actually never seen it isn't that the one where he's like the yeah I haven't seen relationship either. I've heard it's, oh I've heard it's good that's okay yeah that's I was thinking of Hancock which always looked dumb to me yeah I, I never saw, saw that one yeah. either yeah I remember Hitch as being a a sweet nothing of a Will Smith rom com there you go well what about he's Hitch- funny and cute and charming then he'll be funny and cute and charming in a rom com and then you'll forget about it what about Alfred Hitchcock what kind of baggage do you have with him not a whole lot really just you know, always knowing sort of who he is and knowing the cultural baggage of Psycho or the birds or whatever and everything that's downstream of it without ever really bothering with much of it, at least growing up. I've backfilled some of that since then. I've seen North Northwest before. Right. So, yeah, I don't know. Probably, probably my real entry into uh, Hitchcock was as much rounding out the Jim, Jimmy Stewart of it all as it was mm. mm-hmm. rounding out the or back backfilling Hitchcock himself. Yeah. So Rope and Rear Window and Right. Mm-hmm. Rear Window I did see as a teen. Forgot that one. The man who knew too much. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. And yep. Those are all great in their way. I mean Hitchcock did four Stewarts and four Grants. What was the fourth Stewart? Well maybe he just did no, no, you're right. Vertigo. Vertigo. Yeah, vertigo yeah. So, Vertigo, Rear Window, Man Who Knew. And Rope. And Rope. Yeah. yeah. And, and Rope is actually the one that I haven't I haven't seen. Right. Of those four. Yeah. Well, he certainly knew how to That's bring something seen. out in Jimmy Stewart. If if the subtext of George Bailey is that he's kind of an angu- angular, angry, sarcastic guy, uh-huh. then Hitchcock knew how to make that into text for, <laughs> for Jimmy Stewart. <laughs> yeah, he sure did. Yeah. And make him a lot less likable. Yeah. But it's interesting. I mean, well, I... Yeah. It, 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 that's why you do it. It's like, oh, here's like, you know, one of the most likable leading men in Hollywood history and... Basically all the same mannerisms and tics and stuff, but, but no, yeah. he doesn't like me and he doesn't like the other <laughs> characters in the movie. And he doesn't I, don't, I don't know that he likes being there. <laughs> <laughs> Stuart still compels you to watch him. Yeah, I know. Yeah. He's, he's awesome. He's awesome. Yeah. Well, we almost did Vertigo, but we decided it would be, you know, better to start with North by Northwest. And 
we've been talking a lot about James Bond recently and North by Northwest relates to James Bond pretty directly, as we've said. So my package with Hitchcock, is, I don't know, if you're like a film nerd type person, then once you've exhausted Spielberg and some of like the absolute most obvious stuff in the world, you know, once you've seen the Star Warses and, and, and you're starting to want to take some steps into a larger world, I feel like oftentimes, especially with young men, you start with the horror guys or the suspense guys or the people who have violent action of some type because it just sounds more fun than discovering the French New Wave or something like that. So turns out it is more fun it turns than out discovering it is. the French New Wave. <laughs> right, well, <laughs> watching paint dry is more fun than discovering the French <laughs> New Wave. So, so, yeah, I mean, Kubrick and Hitchcock were kind of, I associate them with Nathan's a 14, 15-year-old. He's going to rent everything from the library or we had local video stores that you, you had like a, you can get six move, six video cassettes, you know, for $6, the Friday rental deal or something like that. So, mm-hmm. I would go in swaths of, I'm going to watch all the Kubrick and I'm going to watch all the Hitchcock and I'm going to watch all the this and the that and the other thing. And so... Hitchcock was definitely one of those. And I think he straddled the line. Like Kubrick, I remember being very dynamic and like those movies just worked. They were as provocative as they were intended to be. Mm -hmm. Time had not dulled the intensity of something like The Shining or Clockwork Orange. I mean, obviously, those movies are still considered to be pretty provocative. And I don't know that I am pleased that 14-year-old Nathan watched them, but he did. Hitchcock, on the other hand... It was kind of always hit and miss as to whether it would still hold up in the same way. I think I think I had enough sort mm-hmm. of it was enough of a connoisseur that I always enjoyed it. And I always enjoyed stepping into this world of especially the things like North by Northwest. I liked the dialogue and the class and the wit and the kind of the elegance of it. But it always felt like this isn't the tempo of a modern movie. This you know the the action scenes aren't the the way that action's done. Now, even though you can clearly see the influence, like you, you have to put on your film buff brain a little bit. Mm-hmm. It, it doesn't just translate directly into the adrenaline rush that it would have been for people back then. When I watch them now, I think I, I've just watched so much old film that like my, my new film brain and my old film brain have kind of just merged at this point. So I can't actually get excited about something like the crop duster scene or some of the the scare scenes in Psycho or, or things like that. But uh, he's obviously he's one of those directors that's fun for people who are discovering cinema to watch because he's he's doing a lot and it's so obvious what he's doing. I mean that's the other reason that people like Kubrick and Hitchcock are often you know kind of first first stops on a film education because. It's obviously designed, you know, there's nothing, there's nothing that's designed to not feel designed. If you, there's nothing, there's there's nothing about it that's made to feel subtle. Right. Mm -hmm. It's just, this is film art. We are cutting in a pattern. We are, these shots are composed. They are obviously composed. There's nothing about this that doesn't scream artifice in some ways, but it screams artifice in delightful ways often. This is all designed. There's obviously an authorial voice behind this. That was very exciting. It was just, it was, it's Hitchcock still, I think, is one of the most exciting directors for a young film buff to watch because you can see what he's doing. You can just, you can always kind of see like what the strategy is. And he's always ahead of you. I mean, he's a genius and so much of, but it's just, it's fun to watch. I've never really bought into the whole school of art should pretend like it's not art or it should hide itself. <laughs> it should be subtle. Mm-hmm. 
I like writers who show off. I like directors who show off. I like, you know, we talked about this with Zack Snyder. Every moment of his movie is a movie. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, it, yeah. Well, it, it's a question of whether or not that showing off actually serves what you're doing. Right. Right. Well, I was just having a conversation about this with somebody who goes to our church who's been filling out his back catalog of reading and he's reading something Wicked This Way Comes and discovering Bradbury's right. <laughs> very purple prose and trying to figure out how to process that. Right. You know, is it is it wrong if he isn't a huge fan of it? Is it, is he, you know, why does he make me have to read this three times to figure out what he's trying to describe about this train? Right. And the answer is Bradbury can be very annoying and get in his way and get it in his own way. Yeah. And, and so can Zack Snyder. And so can all kinds of, it's, it's, it's not that it's always good to show off, but where, when Bradbury connects with the pitch, he, nobody's better. I mean, he, I don't know how often he really does that to, to my to my adult <laughs> to my adult brain, but there are passages in something wicked that are very beautiful and very evocative about the fall or about the evil train pulling in and and yeah. you know at three o'clock in the morning the witching hour all you know there's stuff that lives with me and there's stuff in Justice League that lives with me and I don't know yeah so what'd you tell him? I just said yeah. Same sort of thing. Style, yeah. style, style, style. Style can be used to good effect or bad effect. You don't have to like it. Right. Some of it's just a matter of taste. Right. But he's doing everything that he's doing. I think I even said, you know, lots of places Bradbury does that sort of thing to bad effect. I think he does it to pretty good effect in Something Wicked. Something Wicked is his best, I'd say, along with several a handful of short stories. Mm. Yeah, I mean, what's insufferable, I think, is when someone's putting on style, when style is not organic to the thing that they're doing, the story they're telling, the piece of art that they're doing, or when the style doesn't seem to arise organically out of who they are. But with somebody like... They're putting on somebody else's style. Right. But with Bradbury, it's like, that guy just didn't know how to do anything else. Like, that's that's who he was. (laughs) He was just really excited to tell you about Mm -hmm. everything, and he's not putting it on. That's just who he is. You don't have to love it, but it's who he is, and... Same thing for someone like Alfred Hitchcock. It's this is it is ironic and it is thoughtful. You know, it's not like Hitchcock's just like spontaneously dancing as he creates all this stuff, but it comes out of his own irony. It comes out of his own methodical way of thinking about suspense. And it, I think that it'll be more suspenseful if instead of like any normal human being would, we have Cary Grant just run away if he first hop into a strategic crouch pose right freeze there while we you know get the crop duster behind him and we have it all move and then he moves right he's gonna how many times is uh does uh does grant hop into a a crouching pose with his arms like right right like (laughs) well like how many times just do we see that from cary grant like which none of our listeners can't see that but, but if, you, if like, you watch the movie you saw it you saw it five thousand times and it's part of you know i'm creating suspense this isn't art this isn't i'm not trying to be a realist here right right well what, one of the things that hitchcock, hitchcock by the way i guess we could just talk about hitchcock but uh, one of the things that hitchcock believed in and helped pioneer along with other people it's, it's easy to give somebody like alfred hitchcock all the credit for coming up with the things that he does most splashily but 
he's part of film movements and film history and other people were doing these things. But one of the things that Hitchcock really believed in was the compression and the elongation of time. He said, that's what cinema does well and does to emotional effect. And so let's compress the boring parts as much as possible. But you watch a Hitchcock movie now and you're like, we could use a little bit more compression of these boring parts. (laughs) Before the time, he was really compressing the boring parts. And let's elongate the exciting parts. Let's, Let's not worry about realism. Let's not worry about what a guy would really do if an assassin was coming after him or a crop duster was bearing down on him. Let's figure out how we can visually stretch this out and make theater out of this and and delay the payoff as long as possible. And so you watch any modern movie where this movie actually has the moment where, you know, they're clinging on and the bad guy comes and he's going to crush his hand. But you watch that moment in any movie now and it goes on forever and it slows down. And that's Hitchcock's influence, you know, just the mm-hmm. idea that the suspenseful thing is happening now. So let's slow let's down. Linger. Let's mm-hmm. linger. Let's delay the payoff as much as possible. That's that's what he does. And some of it just because the longer I can credibly keep you on the edge of your seat, the more satisfying it'll be when we give you the payoff. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and, let's and the, milk that. And the payoff doesn't even matter. I mean, that's that's the wonderful thing actually about the the final moment with Eve Kendall in this movie is right. who cares how he got her off of the mountain. It what, did what's, not matter. The only thing that's interesting <laughs> is the fact that she's dangling there. So let's let's cut to the chase here. <laughs> now they're in bed. Yeah, let's 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 cut to our saucy joke. All right, let me let me give a little bit. I'll, I'll give a little bit of context on Hitchcock and this movie. Hitchcock came up in the early twentieth century and went to basically just as a young man worked himself up in a film stu- studio paramount's wing of film production in britain Uh, he just got a job as a storyboard not as a storyboard but as a guy that would design the titles for silent movies because if you've ever watched an actual silent movie you know it's not just text on a screen it's like little pictures Mm -hmm. and curly cues and it's it's very artistic and tit hitchcock had an artistic talent so he went and he, he he first worked in an advertising agency and then that turned him into just a guy working designing titles and he claimed he had no thought of being a film director it wasn't like a profession that people dreamed about in the 1910s and 1920s it's not like every little boy was like i'm gonna be a movie director when i grow up just wasn't a thing i mean he was alive before this medium even took off so in the 1920s he works himself into a job and then just kind of goes up the ladder and becomes a assistant film director and goes to germany sees what the German expressionists are doing, which, you know, Metropolis and Nosferatu would be touchstones, shadows and drama, high drama and high emotions and very vivid camera work. I mean, one of the pinnacles of the entire short history of film that we have is the end of the silent era before clunky sound technology came along and we had to nail down our cameras and everything got very static and boring and non-dynamic but but the end of silent film was so dynamic and the the camera was moving so much and it was swooping in and they were doing all these tricks and these dissolves and you just you watch the height of silent film and it's it actually feels very modern in a lot of ways Hmm. and so hitchcock absorbed all that and then he went back to britain and started doing movies just kind of worked himself into a director married 
the editor Alma, who became Alma Alma Ravel, who became Alma Hitchcock, was working as an editor at the the British studio where he starts, first started as a title designer, and they became kind of a power couple. And she was, by all accounts, his right hand woman throughout his life, and had all kinds of control over these movies. And it's her taste that's dictating a lot of this stuff, and her weirdness that's dictating a lot of this stuff, just as much as Hitchcock. But like women of that era, she 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 just stayed out of the limelight, and you know Hitchcock was the brand. She wasn't the brand, but she was arguably some of the brains. And now, of course, feminist scholars are making a lot of hay out of that. But I don't think that they're exaggerating it too much. It is true. In any case, Hitchcock just happened to do some suspense pictures. One of them based on the work of Rebecca Author, what's her face, Daphne Demur, called The Lodger, and it was big hit in Britain. And he became the suspense guy. And David O. Selznick over in Hollywood came calling and said, do you want to come and actually do Rebecca and do movies for Hollywood? And Hitchcock had no affinity for Hollywood, wasn't interested in Hollywood, the Hollywood game at all, but was interested in the Hollywood toys, wanted to be on, have Hollywood money and go, go to Hollywood studios and play with the latest technology. So Hitchcock goes to Hollywood and really, the rest is history. There's not a lot to say about Hitchcock's life. Because his life just was the cinema, you know, it's not like some interesting side story. He stayed married to his one wife all his life, had one daughter, had some interesting sexual obsessions that he explored pretty explicitly on screen with cold, icy blonde after cold, icy blonde after cold, icy blonde. He would get women like Grace Kelly and then Tippi Hedren under contract and kind of create them from whole cloth. I mean, it is it is weird what he did with his starlets. He would just find nobodies and then make them into these goddesses. And, you know, Grace Kelly became the princess of Monaco for crying out loud or Monaco, however you say that. But yeah, his life is actually pretty, pretty boring. The interesting thing, like we already alluded to, is that he was a master of self-promotion. He began to appear in his movies. The audience began to like noticing him and he had a very distinctive look. And so everybody would get a kick out of looking for Hitchcock. And then in 1954, I think he he launched the Alfred Hitchcock show, which he did not direct. I think he directed maybe 18 of the 265 of those, but he he appeared in every one of them as this personality and he had this really droll sense of humor and everybody just liked Hitchcock and he, be, you know, he had his the musical theme and the profile and everything. And <laughs> he's just like Spielberg, like Walt Disney. I mean, I think those are the three really. He was just a master of self-promotion. And so the real reason, one of the real reasons that he's remembered is not because he was such a great artist that, your mom and your grandma know his name. <laughs> no, it's because he appeared on a TV show. And it's like Walt Disney, you know. I mean, you couldn't tell me who the master of animation over at Fox was. Or, you know, some, a lot of people don't know John Lasseter. But everybody knows J Walt Disney because he appeared on TV. Because he appeared in public. Because he had a persona. He made a theme park. for Yeah, he made, a, he made a theme park. And, and Hitchcock Named liked... after himself. Right. <laughs> and Hitchcock was just... A master of self-promotion, a master of giving interviews. If you've ever watched a trailer for one of his movies, it's usually just Hitchcock. He'll walk out and he'll be like, well, I don't do a Hitchcock at all. But he'll say, you know, I have a new movie and it's set at a hotel and some very bad things happened at this hotel. <laughs> and he'll walk around the set of Psycho and kind of just show you. And 
the, the trailer for Psycho is hilarious, actually, because Hitchcock is funny and he'll 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 open up a door and say, "In that door, in that room, the most terrible the mo- thing that you'll never," and then he'll stop himself and say, "No, no, no, I can't even, I can't <laughs> even tell you what it is," and he'll close the door. <laughs> He's so good at self promotion and at promoting his work and just you know, like Jake was saying, I think you said this on Mike. You had books. Uh, you have a book yeah. somewhere in your library. I, I'm pretty sure. Yeah, Alfred Hitchcock presents you know mysteries of tales of suspense or something like that right tales of horror and mystery whatever it is it's his name on other people's stories right that somebody else probably curated right it's his name and therefore it's in my house somehow right the the one sort of Uh, hitchcock gathered these stories they're probably good right yay (laughs) like as if alfred hitchcock was pouring through (laughs) i found the 12 stories that will guarantee the to thrill the minds of readers everywhere right Uh (laughs) uh-huh yeah but it's the same thing with uncle walt you know i mean like uh, these guys are just so good at you're gonna go through you know the thrift store and and you know, you've got the nephew or whoever who thinks he's into suspense or horror or thrilling stories. Are you going to grab the... The generic book of scary stories. Yeah. The, whatever anthology or the Alfred Hitchcock presents anthology of lesser stories than we're in the... <laughs> <laughs> the generic book done by someone who cared. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Whose name you don't know. Do you think they really don't... Because I would just bet that they do. I've never looked at a book of them, but I bet they coincide sometimes. The actual quality stories and the ones that are. Yeah, I mean, I think I'm sure. I'm sure. I mean, you know, Hitchcock didn't get to get to be Hitchcock by not having quality control. um, Yeah, he understands his his craft at least. Yeah, the people working for him are the best and probably the best at collating. And it's just important to know that Hitchcock was a a brand and a very savvy businessman. And it actually was looked down upon by the establishment until the French, our good friends, the French, decided that he was an artist. And there's a famous, wonderful book, actually, called Truffaut Hitchcock, or maybe it's Hitchcock Truffaut. And that book is the French filmmaker Francois Truffaut interviewing Hitchcock. And Truffaut, who has appeared on this podcast before as uh, Lamarck or whatever his name was in Close Encounters. Truffaut was just a worshiper at the Shrine of Cinema, and he saw that Hitchcock was was not just a showman, but what actually was a, a genius and a pioneer. And so, he he got Hitchcock, because Hitchcock was so savvy, Hitchcock would never really tell you what was his bag of tricks are. But Truffaut got Hitchcock to open up, and it's a wonderful book because Hitchcock just talks very freely about what he did and why and how the the shower scene in Psycho was put together and the editing strategies behind these things. And if you want to know how movies are made and the kinds of tricks and the kinds of, I don't know how many times I've said something that's comes out of that book. You know, we, we, we talk all the time about hmm. the difference between surprise and suspense, which is a Hitchcock formulation that he gave to Truffaut, the bomb under the table that either mm-hmm. you either see, see it planted or it just goes off. If it just goes off, that's surprise. If you see it planted and then everybody comes and has a conversation sitting At around the, the table, table, that's suspense. So, Hitchcock was a very articulate man and he ended up talking to Truffaut for something like 60 hours and then every couple of years they'd get together and add to the book. And wow. and so, in terms of the documented the documentation of one man's process and one man's genius, Hitchcock has that. So, 
both as a popular brand and as a sort of whatever you want to say, a high art or scholarship brand or artisans, an artisan brand. Hitchcock just hits both of those things. And as you read the book, what you you, you, you see the kinds of things that made Hitchcock special. He cared about pure cinema. He wasn't interested in he wasn't interested in telling a story the way that a play tells a story or the way that a novel tells a story. He wasn't interested that much in character or in dialogue. He just wanted to do things that only movies could do. So actors would often find it very frustrating to work with him because he'd say, stand there and do this for the next three seconds. And they say, what's my motivation? And he'd say, a paycheck. And, <laughs> you know, there's, there's just all these stories. You know, he says to Harry, Henry Fonda, I need you to look up. And Henry Fonda said, why would I look up? It doesn't make sense for the scene and for what's... I need you to look up because I'm going to cut to a shot of the clock and the audience is going to clock that there's a clock over there and they're going to... That's going to... And so, in order to perform in a Hitchcock movie, and people like Stewart and Grant were aware of that, this, you had to just exist, which is something that a Stewart or Grant is good at. You have to just be. And, and then you have and to... be capable of chewing up scenery. Yeah. And... Both of them, both of, if you watch Grant and Stewart in Hitchcock movies, it, it's sort of like the pre-Brad Pitt. Yeah. Like Brad Pitt will always find something to eat, mm -hmm. to chew up scenery. They're always doing things with their hands. Yep. Always. And it's really, f it, it's fun to notice and notice that that's a trick that they have to rely on really hard to mm -hmm. chew up scenery in Hitchcock in particular. Yeah. And then it and then it gets kind of annoying after a while, <laughs> but man, they get really handsy in order to just kind of keep their keep the energy, keep and, the energy, keep the attention, keep keep it interesting. Oh, because Hitchcock doesn't care. He's going to say, <clears throat> "I need you to hit that mark." There's an X on the floor. I need you to be there for my shot to work, and that's what I'm interested in. So you know, say your lines, whatever. I'm not going to give you a bunch of direction or say you know try and get into. I actually, I, I really, not only do I not care, I'm a actively upset at the idea that we would have to talk about your motivation. Your motivation is to do what I tell you, what I tell you <laughs> so that the light can hit you so that it can be recorded onto a film strip so that we can tell a story. I'm the storyteller. You're not a story. You're you actor are not the storyteller. You're just another prop. Well, th that is how you feel about Cary Grant and North by Northwest. Like, it's like he's a creature of the story. It's not... I don't know. It's like he's everything about everyone is subordinated right. to what Hitchcock is doing. It actually feels that way. And I don't know. It feels pretty stifling in, a, in its own way. When, you, when you've seen him in a movie, which we watched earlier this year in Philadelphia Story yes. versus here, he's got exactly one thing that he's doing in this movie. And he has 12 things he's doing in Philadelphia right. Story. He's, he's playing That's a character right. with, with, I'm just going to have to embrace this word because I don't know what the other one is and I keep using it. He's playing a character with interiority, folks, in Philadelphia Story, yeah. where he, he really is just yeah. a prop. And, 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 and he's really a sex prop. Yeah. Well, I mean, let's be honest. Like, he just is a, his job is to be a walking sex god yeah. in this movie, period. Mm -hmm. And that's it. That's all he's supposed to do. And I would say he's, Cary Grant, obviously, is the best, one of the best of all time at doing that, maybe the best of all time at, at just doing that, at just existing. And Hitchcock loved working with stars. I mean, Hitchcock did understand that I need audience connection. I, I need movie stars. In fact, let's hire Cary Grant so that I can avoid setting up who this character is. The second Cary Grant walks out, you know exactly 
who Roger Thornhill is and you don't yep. need anything else. Same thing with James Stewart. Same thing with Fonda in The Wrong Man. Same thing with as soon as Hitchcock got the clout, he just only ever worked with stars because it kept him from ever having to do anything to establish character. I mean, he, he said explicitly to Truffaut, I think, uh, hiring a star allows me to shave 20 movie, minutes off of my movie because I don't have to tell <laughs> you who this person is. And we're downstream of that. So these days, movies exist in even more of a shorthand, I think, derived from people like Hitchcock. Mm-hmm. So, you, so something like Iron Man is going to take two minutes to tell you who Tony Stark is, and it's going to basically be based on and Robert after, Downey Jr.'s and, star performance. Yeah, and after Iron Man, no movie's ever going to take a second to tell you who Robert Downey Jr.'s character is. Right, precisely. Because he's Iron Man. And by uh, that by that standard, we actually get a lot of, here's Roger Thornhill, he's got a secretary, he treats her this way, he, you know, plays a trick on a guy to get a cat. Like, we actually, by, by today's standards, we get a ton of setup for... Roger right. Thornhill. Yeah, but it's not because Hitchcock wants you to care about him as he is in himself at no. all. <laughs> no, in, 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 in a modern movie, well, we he have feels some... like his necessary establishment was like establishing yeah. scenes and right. stuff right. like that. That's it, all. But I feel like in a modern movie, if someone did that, I would be, I'd, I'd just be waiting for the schmaltz. Right. Like, you want me to feel compassion and sympathy and sadness at this character. Right. But Hitchcock, <laughs> he doesn't care at all. No, Hitchcock never went for bathos. Uh, never went for pathos rarely i mean there are movies yeah. like vertigo or notorious where you feel bad for the characters but you kind of feel like hitchcock's winking at you and you kind of feel as an author as, as an authorial presence you feel him having fun torturing <laughs> the characters and having fun maybe at your expense as you feel bad for them though you know that hitchcock and the movie itself doesn't actually feel all that bad for them we're here to play a game viewer hey guys in this contract with me yeah. right Hey guys, here's Cary Grant. He's the star of this movie. In this movie, he's playing a mad, um, a madman named Roger Thornhill. Right. His secretary is going to call him Mr. Thornhill five thousand times. Why? Because in about five minutes, somebody's going to call him something completely different, and it, it will establish that we have a case of mistaken identity. Right. <laughs> the end. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. I mean, he is such a craftsman that there are characters throughout his movies that pop. They're always villains. Claude Rains in Notorious, Norman Bates in Psycho. I would say to some degree, Martin Landau in this movie. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, he's, he's awesome. Great. Leonard, you know, just skulking in gaily in the background of so many shots. <laughs> like, <laughs> if you feel for anybody, it's kind of <laughs> Leonard. But, and we'll talk about the gay coding, which was very explicit and... You know, Hitchcock's having fun with that. He's, he's, it didn't sneak by him. Nothing, nothing that feels sexual in this movie snuck by Hitchcock. accidental. No. <laughs> or <Yeah>. incidental. Yes. <laughs> Including, of course, <laughs> the train, which, which Hitchcock enjoyed recounting to Truffaut in the book. It, it, it's one of those things that, like, it's so ham-fisted that it can go over your head. Like... Well, that, that's why I thought it was worth even saying that, what we just said, like, it's all inside of his purview and his control because you you kind of your brain just tells you well obviously he didn't mean that the phallic symbol with the train going into a tunnel there that's that would be ridiculous and why mm. how, how would they even get away with that that's that's like monty python stuff yeah but so cheeky that it belongs in a sketch but hitchcock was cheeky and he was pushing the boundaries and there's things there's actually places in this movie there's a line that eve kendall says where you can see her lips don't move right with the dialogue and it's because they had to pull it back a little bit she says something like i never i never 
Oh, I don't remember what. I don't remember. The, the real line is, I never make love on an empty stomach. But they had to change it to buh, 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 empty stomach. And so you, you can see her mouth. You can see the, her lips that say, I never make love on an empty stomach. But the dialogue that comes out of her I think mouth I is heard. different. I think that's what I heard. Yeah. But, I, I think that's like I heard it the way it was intended. Yeah. Well, I wouldn't be surprised. And hmm. I don't, I'm not sure. Not, not like anyone's too, too confused. I don't think about what Eve Kendall's <laughs> <laughs> intentions are in that scene. Roger wasn't confused. No, he was not. She asked him if he was confused oh. and he said he was not confused. Right. <laughs> he said that he understood her meaning perfectly. Right. Well, you know, she's a big girl in all the right places. In all the right places. <laughs> oh, oh boy. my goodness. I, uh, yeah <laughs> it's uncomfortable <laughs> yeah it's awful i mean it's awful uh, we'll, we'll get to it uh so I've, you could go back to philadelphia story if you want to hear some context on Cary grant he was born archibald leach he was a circus performer ha, leach yeah a piccadilly circus performer circus a, man a clown clown came over to america worked vaudeville got in movies and created the Cary grant persona whole cloth the most famous quote of Cary Grant reflecting on himself is he said, everyone wants to be Cary Grant. Even I want to be Cary Grant. And so he's not actually that guy. And I think the insight that we had at Philadelphia story, which carries over here and just makes sense of Cary Grant's whole persona is you can see a very serious guy lurking somewhere in there, observing coldly Mm -hmm. everything, all the clowning, and and he is a perfect clown, as the drunk driving exemplifies <laughs> in this movie. And he's very good at light comedy, and he's very good at banter. But there's always an angry, serious guy lurking somewhere. Mm-hmm. Maybe that's why I didn't He wears think... it with disdain. <clears throat> yes. And Arsenic. If, to tie into our bond, yes. sort of. Yes, exactly. Is a thing that this character and Cary Grant and all, all James Bonds have... Yeah. In some degree, uh, certainly Sean Connery and certainly Daniel Craig. Yes, yes, yes. What were, you, what were you saying about arsenic and old lace? Maybe that's why it doesn't work. Yeah, I, I think so. I, I actually don't like Cary Grant and some of his most bumbling, silly roles because I don't think that they work. I've never liked bringing up Baby. I know people love bringing up Baby, but... I haven't seen it. To me, he's just so silly in that, and it's actually it actually doesn't suit him. I mean, he can do pratfalls, he can be silly, but there has to be an undercurrent of self-awareness and of, of anger, I think. And Philadelphia Story might be the best. We said that movie was just lightning in a bottle with casting and yeah. direction and dialogue and script and yeah. everything. It was lightning right. in a bottle. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so, some very brief... So, uh, North by Northwest itself... Hits in the middle of Hitchcock's best run, Dial M for Murder, Rear Window are in the past, Psycho and the Birds are coming up. I mean, this is the peak. This is peak Hitchcock. Everybody knows who he is. He's a he's a brand name and he can do it. He's had his TV show for like five years by now or something like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Something along those lines. And he is working on a movie called The Wreck of the Merry Deer for MGM with a uh, writer named Ernest Lehman. And they cannot crack this movie. Lehman comes to Hitchcock and just says, I don't know how to do this. And Hitchcock says, okay, well, we get along well together, so let's do something else. And Lehman says, okay, what do you got? And Hitchcock says, I don't have anything, but here's a couple things that, here's a couple of fun ideas I've always had. I've always wanted to do a chase across the face of Mount Rushmore, and I've always wanted to have a dead guy at the United Nations. And here's just like some scraps from my notebooks, just like random stuff. Can we just come up with 
a Hitchcock plot to tie all that together. And I think it, you, you could tell because the, the plot, frankly, of this movie sucks. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it is it's insane. insane. It's so stupid. But it's a handful of great set pieces. The, 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 like I said, the original concept for Mount Rushmore is that the hero would hide out in the nose of Thomas Jefferson and then would be found out because he sneezed. Um, Hitchcock wanted the bad guys to somehow harness a cyclone and send it across the, the plains what? of Indiana at the hero. But the screenwriter apparently talked him into, maybe we could just make it a, a crop tester <laughs> that might. And so they just concocted this crazy story. And, and Lehman was a former advertising executive and kind of a raconteur and a witty guy. So, you know, he's responsible for adding some, some elegance and some wit to the you know all the mm-hmm. all the one-liners and stuff the of banter. which this movie has much and they just kind of you know they basically just kind of strung together a bunch of hitchcock set pieces with a dopey plot and figured that people would like it and they were right they were gonna get stewart originally for this role it was gonna be a much more unassuming kind of admin kind of, you know it was going to be much more like what is this guy is up to his neck and he doesn't know what he's doing and then at a certain point they just decided let's let's go with the more man of the world Cary grant kind of thing and we can have a little he bit just keep asserting himself in these places right instead of bumbling into them. right well and i think the eve kendall stuff insofar as it plays plays better with Cary Grant. Absolutely. You, oh, can't, yeah. you can't really do that with... No, not with a, with a sort of innocent, bumbling Jimmy, Jimmy Stewart. Right. She has to completely how seduce he would have to play. Jimmy Stewart, like, and yeah. he doesn't even know what's happening to him, and it's just, you don't want to see that. So, yeah, they Hitchcock got uh, Eva Marie Saint under contract and fashioned her into one of her, one of his patented cold blondes grace kelly was married to the prince of monaco by now so we can't have her Uh, so let's just make another grace kelly because that's what we do so he got her and uh, hitchcock personally picked out her wardrobe and her hairstyles and you know taught her to look down and kind of have those bedroom eyes and lower her lower her voice you know an octave and kind of talk the way that she talks and do the thing that he does because that's how Hitchcock liked his, his women, I guess. So he just, you know, you can watch this actress. I think she was nominated, maybe even won an Academy Award for On the Waterfront. And she's very different. She's not, she's not, I think she's best remembered for Eve Kendall. So we kind of think of her as this sophisticate kind of, you know. Very knowing. Very knowing, seductive. But that's not actually who she was or what she was best at or and I don't know, the weird energy that she brings to Eve Kendall is is interesting. This movie would, in some ways, maybe work better with Grace Kelly or someone who just felt more natural. Mm-hmm. But also, maybe it's better maybe to have not. someone that, yeah. given where the story goes, it's kind of nice, actually. But, but everyone's pretending to be different things all the time. Right. So, and she feels, she, she does, I think that weird energy is like, which part of her is the pretending part and which is not? Right. And the movie is like... What matters is that they're going to have sex. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Who cares? <laughs> I mean, that's how it feels to me. Yeah, I think if the movie had any kind of moral sensibility, then we could say we could say that all the romance was a little bit more of a put on. But the movie wants to have its cake and eat it too. It, it wants her to be that seductive and that for that to be a real part of her character. But then it also wants her to be the innocent kind of. I was taken in by Cary Grant. Everybody right. is like if he crawled through my window at night and. 
I saw him there, I'd ask him to stay and come to bed with me. But it's also kind of the standard James Bond plot of I was just an innocent waif who was taken in by, you know, James Mason's character, you know, when I didn't know what I was doing. So in order to buy that she was ever in this position to begin with, you have to buy her as kind of an innocent, you know, right girl from nowhere. But then she turns into this, you know. Yeah. Yeah. So it doesn't really it's Ava Green's character from it's it's uh Vesper. Right. Mm-hmm. But Eva Green's a fantastic actress, and I think she she threads the needle in a way that makes sense of Vesper Lynn, as ridiculous as that character is on the yeah. page. Eva Green always feels consistent mm-hmm. down to down to the places where she's being cold and the places where she's suddenly being vulnerable. Like Eva Green's just just a great actress. But Eva Marie Saint is a Hitchcock creation and feels like it. Right. Yeah. Which is fair enough. I mean, she she works for the movie. Uh-huh. Uh, but these scenes are those scenes are uncomfortable. <laughs> As we will get to, I don't think there's much more context. We were mentioning the musical score. This is by the great Bernard Herrmann, arguably the greatest film composer of the 20th century. I mean, obviously, it has to go to John Williams, but Bernard Herrmann is in the running. I mean, we're talking Psycho. I mean, uh, that's his most famous. He gave us that jaunty, not jaunty, but that he he gave us percussive strings, which... Yeah, (laughs) it's like... You know, you you hit the top of this movie in the title card and you're like, oh, like Danny, Danny Elfman kind of borrowed that for Spider-Man. Mm-hmm. And look, even the little cartoony graphics with the sky skyscraper stuff, that's like somebody, this inspired a lot. Yeah, yeah. Just the credit <clears throat> sequence. But Bernard Herrmann is, yep. is awesome. Bernard Herrmann, I think... The reason he was so influential, yeah, he did the Psycho score. Yeah, he did these motifs that we remember, like the theme from North by Northwest. But... What what he really pioneered was, I'm not going to be bombastic all the time. I'm, I'm willing to just do underscore that. I mean, you, you wouldn't even ever watch North by Northwest and think that that's what's happening. But compared to like, uh, you watch Adventures of Robin Hood and just the whole time the music's like, Robin Hood, he is our hero, the greatest man who ever lived. You know, it's, yep. just, it's just like so in your face telling you whatever or you watch even something like Casablanca and it's just like sad love story da, 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 da. you know Max Steiner Korngold the the names before Herman they're also on the nose and Herman by those standards was very subtle and was very willing to just design a soundscape and and just use horn I mean Psycho is the perfect example it's it's not something that you're gonna hum but boy does it you know, the shower scene in Psycho is the famous scene where you take the music out and suddenly it's like, yeah. okay, she's getting stabbed. How about that? But you have that thing and it just, you know, it does everything. So Herman, very influential film composer and capable of working in a, in major key, with major key leitmotif type stuff. And this is one of the best. I mean, this is, this is a great score, great love theme and particularly just a great adventure theme just adds so much to this movie and it doesn't matter i mean that he repeats that stupid theme nine thousand times it's exciting mm-hmm. every single time and then saul bass was a graphic designer who did influence spider-man i mean this this is the first i forget what they call it but those moving titles that kind of come across the screen that that was something that was pioneered for this movie we had never seen moving titles interacting kind of in a three-dimensional space mm-hmm. with 
with a building or with anything. So that it still of, looks pretty cool. It's pretty it still cool. Still looks cool. Yeah. And yeah. It, yeah. What it re- one thing downstream of it is Panic Room. If you go watch the titles I for Panic Room. I love the titles for Panic Room. The titles might be the best part of they that are. movie. They are. It's all downhill from there. <laughs> yeah. <but. laughs> it is it is the it is the modern update to the same title right. and it is the same actual awesome score. Mm-hmm. It just promises everything. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah, it's great. And I love a good title sequence and I mourn the death of the title sequence and Marvel can take a long walk in the sticks for <laughs> helping propagate th- through all of its movies the death of the title sequence and Lord of the Rings can take a long walk in the sticks and George Lucas can take a long walk in the sticks because all of those things were just like, we don't need title. But George Lucas still had the good sense to give you an overture and... Yep. Like a some time to be like, oh, I'm in a Star Wars movie. This the is movie exciting. Is beginning. Yeah. Peter Jackson is really the one who killed the title sequence because he was just like, it's Lord of the Rings. And we're in. Exciting action scene. And I think everybody's just keyed off of that. And Marvel has certainly keyed off of that. And it's too bad because you need to be able to transition from your boring life and from watching a bunch of trailers for Coke and popcorn and stuff and, and into the movie. Yeah. And that's what a title sequence with great music gives you. So, yeah. Yeah. I guess the only other thing I'll say, which we'll, I'm sure we'll talk more about, but if you listen to our James Bond discussion, we spent a good chunk of that discussion just simply talking about Kinsey and Margaret Mead. I don't remember whether we actually talked about Margaret Mead, but we, we talked about the sexual revolution and this is a really interesting movie because it's right on the cusp of the more explicit sexual revolution. And you'll, you, you done see that things have already been pretty well revolutionized, mm-hmm. but still not in a way that Eva Kendall can just say, I like making love or I, I don't want to make love on an empty stomach. We can see them more or less make love, but it still has to be foreplay and we still have to be a little coy about it. And while we're going to have a lot of fun with the idea that Cary Grant's had lots of wives and stuff like that, it's going to be a running joke. And, and there's going to be like the girl in the bathtub that's excited about him. And is that this movie? Mm, no. No. no, no in that's a hospital a, bed. Hospital bed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're, we're not going to just... We still have to kind of make it a central conceit of the movie. It can't just be... It can't be as casual as James Bond would eventually make it. But we're definitely... We're just one step. But we're still feeling the need to buttress it with a lot of story and with a lot like this. The whole point of this thing is bringing Cary Grant and what's her face, Eva Marie Saint together. It's not it's not just a casual thing that James Bond does in between the plot of the movie. But we can talk more about that. Let's talk about this movie. So title sequence. Anything else you guys want to say about the awesome title sequence? Just that it's awesome. That's it. Mm-hmm. It's it really. It's worth noting. It, what, what it, it, it. Pull it up on YouTube and watch it. Yeah. It, you know, it highlights the score. It promises a lot. It's engaging. It's not, you know, it would have been like nothing anybody had seen before. Mm-hmm. It's just cool. It also, and it's still cool. It's, yeah. No, it, it's just as cool as anything I've seen in a title sequence. So I watched an interview with, I don't know why I watched it, but I watched an interview with Dan Brown, the writer of The Da Vinci Code, and he's talking about how to create suspense. And and he he says, here's the only thing you need to know as a storyteller about creating suspense. Make your audience a promise. Tell them, if you keep reading this book, you're going to find out this. And make as many promises as quickly as you can. So 
promised them if they keep reading, they'll find out who murdered this guy. If they keep reading, they'll find out, you know, if these two get together. Uh, just just put as much of that stuff in as possible. And since I read that, I've started to see it, you know, and see how sort of... That's a good handle. Oh, what's the word? How not How explicit popular writers and popular filmmakers are about it. Like you read a novel by Stephen King and he'll be like, the terrible thing that was going to happen two days from now began to happen today. And you're like, what's the terrible thing? And it's just so, so naked and making you a promise. Like, you know, <laughs> one day Carrie would kill a bunch of people, but we're not there yet. She's just a sweet girl. You know, it's not quite that bad, but it's, it's almost that bad. And you read, you know, you'll see it in the, the way that J.K. Rowling sets things up. Oh, yeah. and That's what I was thinking about. You are going to find out who Harry Potter is and what these secrets are and who Voldemort is. And I'm just going to throw so many things at you and make you so many promises. And the best and most popular writers are the ones, not who have good payoffs, but the ones who can make the best promises and then have some kind of delivery on those promises. So it can be a simple. The truly great ones have great payoffs, but yes, popular ones just need to get you hooked, right? And so, and the thrill of the hook is what people come back for, right? It's it's what grabs people. Every couple of years, a TV show will <coughs> become popular, and usually, it's because it's made a great promise. You know, a bunch of people are on an island, and we don't know why, and there's a smoke monster, and we don't know why, and you know, people hung with that stupid thing for six seasons and or seven or whatever. I think it was six. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the writers made some really great promises mm-hmm. and could only delay the inevitable. Yeah. Since <laughs> they had <laughs> no way to pay them off. Right. Oh, you wanted to cash that check someday, Will. I've got another season for you. <laughs> Here's an even bigger check. <laughs> With even more promises. X-Files. yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, and lost, but anyway, I think it's I think it's a, I think it's something of a lost art. I think I think one of the reasons why sometimes a, like a Marvel movie, I don't mean to pick on them, but they're just an easy thing that we all know. It, it's like they make some promises, and the best Marvel movies do make a lot of promises, but um, not in such a. I, I like the explicit promise that this title sequence makes. Like this is going to be the most exciting adventure that you've ever seen. It's going to be full of modernism. And of elegance and, you know, just the way that that building's framed and the way that the titles, mm-hmm. you know. One review I read said it's, it looks like it's, or maybe it's been compared to by other critics, ledger lines. Mm-hmm. And so, there is some, I, that is, there is some thematic connection to the rest of the movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Reducing people to numbers and, and objects and symbols. Yeah, and you have all these windows that you can't see in. It kind of gives you a sense of paranoia, but also a sense of adventure, also a sense of just the modern kind of city utopia, dystopia. There, there's just there's so many associations that come from that music with that pop, those pop art titles, and it's just you know the most. Well, and then he's going to give you a beautiful shot looking down a skyscraper onto the sidewalk little right. area there, and yeah. it's just. It was a really creative establishing shot. Yeah. And he does a lot. He throws in a lot of those. Well, that's, it, a, that's, I mean, it's candy now still. It is. It is. It, because it's such a creative, beautiful shot. It, nobody gets that view. Right. He gets views that nobody gets, and le- except for the one person mm-hmm. who sticks their head out of the 
the skyscraper window. Well, the most famous and best one from this movie is the, of the UN after the guy yes. has the knife yes, in his back. Yes, right. When he's running I into the cab. I love that shot. That's amazing. Yeah. It's, well, and it, it, it actually tells you Hitchcock's ironic godlike perspective on all this. And it anchors you in how you should feel, actually. It says, like, yeah, we're all part of the rat race. And we're, we're kind of observing this from, from above. You know, we're going to go down to the streets. But, but never forget that we as an audience stood above <laughs> all of this and we were going to actually stand above it the whole time because this is kind of silly. That is uh, the title credit sequence because you have all these people, you have all this energy and this excitement and the sense of people just, they don't really understand themselves or what they're caught in. Mm -hmm, and that's yeah. the movie. Yeah. Yep. The, the, the modern movie that I think does this sort of thing the best, that makes the biggest promise with its titles and it, it really does excite me when I see it. It's uh, Mad Max Fury Road where hear a car revving and then you see the title big splashy titles come up and they're, they're together and it says tom hardy as max ratowski and charlie's theron as imperator furiosa or whatever her name is and there's just something so these are the mythic characters that you're about to meet and you know you don't even know who you know furiosa is but she's worth telling you like Charlize Theron played her and she's right there and there's a car revving and <laughs> it's, that's just George Miller being a very classic and, and classy filmmaker and, and knowing how to build excitement and suspense before you actually get to the best action scenes ever. And yeah, he's a genius. So that's the title sequence. It's a good title sequence. How many stars, Ben, do you give <laughs> to the title sequence? Out of how many? Four. Four. Four stars. Jake? Out of four? Yeah. Four. Four stars to the title sequence. I'm glad. Okay. Good job, title sequence. Uh, then we meet Cary Grant. He's with his secretary. He's going to steal a cab. He's sending sweet nothings to some lady somewhere. Yeah. There's also that moment. Oh, you sent that last time. That's right. Yeah. Oh, I'll use this one. Sweets. And then he makes a sexual joke out of it. Right. Yes. And then that moment with the porter. Say hello to your wife for me. Or give my regards to your wife. We don't talk anymore. You just, all this little right. stuff that indicates right. Cary Grant is. Yeah. He's yep. a charming playboy that doesn't care and is amoral. And yep. It's going to walk all over anybody. Walks all over anybody. But, he but, just stole that man's cab. Nah, I gave him the gift of feeling like a saint. Feeling really good about himself. Which in any other movie, that's a setup for Cary Grant to have a heart at the end no 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 <laughs> <laughs> it's 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 a setup for the same thing to be done to him right yeah it, it is i think the, the best thing you can say about it the most moral thing you can say about it is they are setting him up for a fall and they are making it even more fun when he has to scramble and he's out of his depth yeah you want to see this guy on top of the world to start with because we're going to pull the rug out mm -hmm. and having him be a little bit of a jerk about being on top of the world just gives us that extra bit of enjoyable schadenfreude as we see all the terrible things that happen to him yeah we don't feel too bad about the madman getting some kind of comeuppance we all have a little bit of a chip on our shoulder about madison avenue guy yeah to, to, today especially this, in in the 50s right yeah. this, at late 50s this movie just does huh. not get made this way today there's no way that a one percenter like this an elite <sighs> is a hero I mean, at least not without being even more thoroughly punished for his societal status. Like, 
George Clooney plays these kinds of characters, but he plays them as buffoons or as people who need to be punished. I mean, unless it's Ocean's Eleven, but in Ocean's Eleven, we're going to we're going to go a long way to, you know, set those guys up in opposition to the really snooty rich people. Well, and then you're going to punish him by making Ocean's Twelve. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, (laughs) Yes, exactly. But you want, you're going to go a long way to say, you know, Danny and Rusty, they're men of the people, actually, within this elegant world of pure <laughs> sex appeal and money and everything where, where, yeah. where no poor people exist. Danny and Rusty, you know, they're, they speak your language. They speak your language, <laughs> <laughs> which is stupid and a lie, but it's a lie that we're all happy to. It's fun to casually bring up George Clooney in e- he deserves to be brought up every single time Cary Grant does yes, because hmm. the man just is a walking, talking Cary Grant wannabe. Right. And every time I watch Cary Grant, I think, man, does George Clooney not apologize whatsoever for just trying to be Cary Grant. But I think he does because huh. he makes these liberal message movies. Instead of just having a career where he makes North by Northwest, which he could. Yeah, he, yeah, yeah, yeah. He makes movies about how stupid it is for him to be George Clooney. And he makes, I think at his best, he makes Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? Where it's like, hey, look at me. I'm an idiot. I, I can do the clown shtick. Yeah. <laughs> and then watch he, me be in a drunk driving scene for an entire movie. Right. And he's, he's good. I mean, I like, I like self-effacing George Clooney, especially when he's being written by the Coen brothers and they're, sure. they, they know exactly how much we all hate George Clooney and they, they know how to just play it brilliantly. But George Clooney could never just... Besides Ocean's Eleven, where he made all his money by playing Cary Grant, yeah, so that he could then do a bunch of movies and apologizing Batman for being and Robin. Yeah, well, <laughs> <laughs> that was punishment enough for being <laughs> Cary Grant. I guess Cary Grant is wearing the best suit in all of cinema. I defy you to name a better suit. Daniel Craig wears some wonderful, very tight suits in those James Bond movies, but name name a better suit. There isn't. There isn't a better suit in all of cinema. I've never thought about this question, so I don't. I just couldn't name one. I thought about wearing my suit to the studio today in honor of Cary Grant's suit. Hmm. I'd be on my suit and tie, hmm. but I didn't. Yeah, <sighs> I guess I'm not going to show you a few things. I guess not. No. It's a it's a fantastic suit. I mean, you have the suit in what's the name of the suit? You have the tuxedo in Jackie Chan's Immortal <laughs> Masterpiece. <laughs> the tuxedo. There's there's some great. There's some great suits. Bond Bond is always well suited and well tailored. Yes. The black suit in Men in Black is a pretty fun. Mm-hmm. It's a great suit. I think that suit. that was kind of my my um, mental reference point for suits growing up. I think would really? have been that. Yeah. What are some other fun suits? John Wick. Yes. Yes. Is another fun suited individual. You're looking up great suits. I'm just trying to think. I mean, Don Draper wore some great suits, but, but Don, Don Draper is Don Draper is just doing Cary, Cary Grant. Grant, and John Hamm is another guy who deserves to be in the conversation with with Cary Grant and with George Clooney. Mm-hmm. But uh, John Hamm very explicitly made a career out of kind of puncturing the myth of Cary Grant uh, explicitly, which is all that Mad Men is doing. But in order to do it, he wears a darn fine gray flannel suit, just like. Steve McQueen and Thomas Crown Affair. Yeah, sure. That's a pretty good one. That's, that's true. That's true. In researching this episode, I actually found a short story 
written entirely from the point of view of Cary Grant's suit. <laughs> what? Really? Yeah, no, people love that suit. It has been voted. The, the, the real reason I'm bringing this up is be, not because I'm a, a fashion uh, maverick or fashion maven, as you guys know, but the suit has frequently been voted the best men's apparel in all of moviedom. And, <laughs> you know, it wins all kinds of con- contests and best of lists and a hundred best. And it, and it deserves to be up there for sure. I, I mean, I, I really did think about, I had the thought of wanting to wear my light gray suit. Yeah, no, <sighs> Cary Grant knows how to, knows how to wear a suit. The description I pulled up on uh, this website says it's a lightweight, single-breasted gray flannel suit, vest or ventless with three-button fastening and notched lapels. The trousers have forward pleats, which is interesting. The suit is complemented with oxblood leather derby shoes and a gray silk tie. Mm-hmm. Pretty classy, pretty classic. It's very classy, very classic. Somewhat from my suit research, of which I <laughs> did a little bit more than I intended. Somewhat forward thinking, I think. Like this, this suit was a little bit ahead of its time. Cary Grant always, Cary, Cary Grant actually wrote an article for GQ, the one article Cary Grant ever wrote in his life, talking about how to pick out a suit. And he says, "You, you don't want to be too fashion forward, nor do you want to be too fashion behind. You want to always try and be right in the middle." And right in the moment, yeah, right in the moment and right in the middle, and. Don't be too conservative, but also don't be too out there. And Cary Grant seems to have pulled that off because the suit doesn't feel old and stodgy. It feels like a good suit. Well, this GQ article doesn't even list it. Really? Mm-hmm. Is it just new stuff? No. So, we got Pulp Fiction, Reservoir Dogs, Wall Street, Men in Black, Casino, A Scarface, A Single Man, Saturday Night Fever, American Gigolo. Talented Mr. Ripley, Crazy Stupid Love. I feel like these... Chinatown. Okay, that's that's 70s. Great Gatsby and The Great Gatsby, so both Redford listed ahead of DiCaprio. The Italian Job, Catch Me If You Can. So, we really like the look of Leo in a suit. Yeah. Goldfinger, Spectre, Kingsman, Coming to America. But Goldfinger, I mean, the the this the 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 influence of this movie all across the board on James Bond is of course famous. The Graduate, Knives Out, Wolf of Wall Street. We really like Leo in a suit. Yeah, yeah. I don't know about GQ. I just don't know about Gentle- Gentleman's Quarterly. Not my favorite magazine. The Telegraph gives you North by Northwest at number one. Good. Doctor No at number two. Yep. Correct. And yet, it shows a picture of daniel craig at doctor under doctor no so that's weird and then it gives us bond or uh, connery ha then thomas crown affair and then robert redford's gatsby i've never seen robert redford's gatsby i'm sure i've seen the image of it before but the man who fell to earth so we get some david bowie oh yes american gigolo man from uncle uncle however you say that henry cavill Oh, right. Skyfall Inspector. Well, if I had to guess, the man from Uncle is probably pretty explicitly doing a James Bond slash Cary Grant. That's just basically what it all comes down to. Right. Right. The James Bond style is, uh, let's see here, Henry Cavill suit. Oh, that is a nice suit on Henry Cavill. Well, in any case, 
I know that our audience wanted <coughs> wanted some discussion of Cary Grant's suit, and so there you have it, Cary Grant's suit heads. I'm glad that we could accommodate you. Anything else you guys want to say about up through the restaurant and all the establishing stuff? And Cary Grant is good at being self-deprecating in his way. He 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 realizes that he is a god among men. He's basically a living Ken doll, and therefore he can be as self-deprecating as he wants, and he doesn't end up deprecated. He only ends up being more charming. Mm-hmm. So he can say things like, think thin, make a note to myself, think thin, and yeah. stuff like that, just because, you know, who cares? And then he gets to the restaurant, and the plot kicks in. He answers that phone call for George Kaplan, and we cut to a couple... He doesn't answer a phone call for George Kaplan, though. He wants to send a telegram <laughs> to his mother. That's right, that's, that's right, right, yeah. He just happens to raise his hand as the waiter is... or busboy or whoever it was, the waiter, is looking for a man named Kaplan and then gets that same guy's attention and the bad guy see him go to make the telegram. Uh, by the way, one of the great mysteries of cinema history is what on earth was Alfred Hitchcock's relationship like with his mother? He never wanted to talk <laughs> about it to the press. We don't really know. Apparently, it was just fine. Like, there's nothing, there's nothing there when you go digging. But man, the work of Alfred Hitchcock is full of some real pieces of work in the mother department. Of course, the most famous is the mother in Psycho, but you've also got the mother in Strangers on a Train and Cary Grant's weird relationship with his mother, played by an actress who is exactly how many years older than Cary Grant? No idea. One. No way. Yeah. Weird. Yeah. That's amazing. Cary Grant's very well preserved and she's not not as, not as well preserved. No. And she's she's a great a terrible mother in this movie. She's very funny. But yeah, Hitchcock just again and again and again and again in his movies, we have these uh, weird kind of sarcastic and or outright diabolical relationships with our mothers. And it's just one of those threads you can pull on. Uh, and I'm sure, you know, thesis papers, I'm sure PhDs have been founded on Hitchcock's relationship with his mother. <laughs> but we'll never know exactly. So, anyway, he goes to get the telegram and gets picked up by these two goons with great faces. Mm-hmm. And they take him back to the house of whatever that guy's, that character's name is. Townsend. Townsend, yeah. And we meet the great James Mason. I love James Mason and everything. I grew up with James Mason from playing Captain Nemo in the 20,000 Leagues under the sea Disney movie, which was a touchstone for me. So I think that's where I know him best, but huh. still have never seen it. It's great. I haven't either. It's really great. It's, 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 I would say it's one of the Disney classics. I'd put it with like in, in the same list with Mary Poppins and the you great say finding Nemo <laughs> is your favorite. Yeah. Is that what I said? Yeah. No, no, no. <laughs> I was like, I don't think you said that. Yeah, no. James Mason provides the voice of the fish. I don't, I don't do a Hitchcock. I don't do a James Mason. I don't do voices for most people, but, uh, James Mason, uh, name an actor who more embodies the quality of urbanity. <laughs> it's hard. Of droll urbanity. It's hard. Than James Mason. It's pretty great. Yeah. I mean, he's just, I don't know what else to say, but he's fantastic. And he's got Martin Landau as his little lackey in the background. And uh, would, you, would you guys uh, say that they are straight <laughs> men? <laughs> Obviously, he's got the girl, man. <laughs> it's it's more subtle than I don't know a lot of things. Yes. It's not as it's not as campy as I I actually 
I, I think relatively speaking, the coding is pretty subtle. Well, Maybe yeah. Maybe I'm wrong. You have the scene at the end where Landau says, it was my woman's intuition. And then yes. uh, Mason says something like, I want to thank you. I, I, You care about me. You really do. You know, it's just this. Like, well, and before that, he says, you're jealous, doesn't he? Did yeah, I yeah he does. That? Yeah. 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 There's so enough. It's, it's there. And it's especially there. At, at the end, what you have are a weird jealous lover's triad that shows up all the time in these types of movies where the bad guy's got a girl who's, you know, I mean, Mission Impossible did it mm-hmm. in that. I was just thinking amazing of the, Mission Impossible the wonderful, too. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yep. But yeah, it's like, there's a whole gay energy, gay vibe between the two dudes. I'm just looking out for you and I'm secretly in love with you and you're in love with me too, but also there's a girl and it's complicated and I've got to save you from her because she's going to betray us all. Yes. Is it Mission Impossible 2 has a pretty explicit scene where the henchman comes and says, this is like this. It doesn't it just have this scene. Basically, it just has just, a scene. That's exactly they right. They copied and pasted oh, it. Yeah. In yeah. And then he like cuts his finger off or something with a cigar. Yes. Thing to punish him. Yes. Yeah. And that's like, it. even that has some like, gay bdsm vibe to it yep yeah i forgot how gross that movie was that movie sucks. it's really gross i uh the, the fun fact one of i i think that the the time the only time that i've ever had to close my eyes in a movie theater was in a pg-13 rated mission impossible 2 but i could not stomach the idea of that finger hovering in that cigar cutter it was like so visceral this is this is how far my whole concept of ideas frighten me more than explicit gore or whatever like i think we were talking about with no time to die because i claimed it was violent and you guys thought that kindergartner should watch it i think it was what she said <laughs> yeah. Stand by it. <laughs> yeah 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 <laughs> you're, you're, but, but you would never but if anyone bleeds then you guys think it's violent that's obviously just a com- kill everybody and throw them in acid we're cool yeah completely fair representation blood, of your no, point of view no, yeah yeah uh, you, got, you got it right <laughs> Yeah, for, for me, for whatever reason, you cut off somebody's head with a big blood splatter. It's like, I'm never going to see anybody's head get cut off. Who cares? But you, you, have, you have a finger, hover. you have something relatable, like a finger hovering in a cigar cutter. And it's like, I've handled cigar cutters and I know what they could do to a finger. It's like, I can't, I can't even on, watch. On some level, I agree with you. Yes. On some level, it is easier to imagine that. Yeah. If it's, if it's, it's relatable, I, I, I'd, I'd much rather watch an arm get hacked off than a paper cut. I mean, honestly, just not really claiming that that's correct. I'm just saying that's me. So anyway, that has nothing to do with North by Northwest though. Does it? <laughs> no, I don't think it does. <laughs> I just wanted to return to that argument and win uh, definitively. We were talking about Leonard. Yes, Leonard. Van Damme and Leonard. Yes, Van, Van Damme and Leonard, everybody's favorite band. Yeah. Mart Lando's pretty great. He does a lot just by standing there in this movie. I, I, for whatever reason, I feel like it's not an accident that he reminds me of a cat and that Leonard sounds like Leopard. Mm-hmm. I don't think that's an accident. <laughs> Maybe the screenwriter is not really that intentional, but I don't know. Everything feels like, let's just click this into place too. Why not? Yeah. This, this movie is very designed, even in the way that it's, the characters are named and yeah. Yeah, that's yeah. all. That's great. Something in Landau's performance, the way he looks, he like stares at you like a cat would. Mm-hmm. I have to think that. It's got those wide-eyed sort of peering from the side. A little discomforting, like, oh, now you're in my personal space. I didn't think you were going to do that. Like, right. What, what are you doing? You never quite know. 
The other thing that's kind of gay coded about Mason and uh, Martin Landau is just how much they they seem to enjoy whatever they're doing together. Like in Martin Landau, any number of times, he'll just smile at James Mason's jokes. Or I think the one in this scene is James Mason says, uh, Cary Grant says, I'm going to go see a play. I was really looking forward to it. And Mason says, you know, with such play acting, you make this very room a theater or something. And then Leonard's, <laughs> Leonard's just over there smiling at his boss's joke. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of stuff like that. But I always enjoy it when people acknowledge that banter is witty. Sometimes in these witty banter movies, it's like everybody just exists in a world where everyone... We're in banter world. Yeah, we <laughs> here in banter <laughs> world. we speak. We There's all say the cleverest thing. or amusing <laughs> yeah. about any of it. It's just how we talk. Yeah. Does, Does the Ville ever acknowledge? Yeah, that, I, I think so. I, I, I'm I, sure we do. I just... I try to write in moments where people acknowledge that something is funny or that someone like if something would actually make someone laugh they laugh i don't know how i mean the bill does exist by and large in banter world it's true you got me just, <laughs> i like just, banter world it's a nice place I, I to like live banter world. i was just thinking like <laughs> huh. I, I try to do what this movie does which is acknowledge that it's in banter there's a couple of places i forget what what it is with his mom but his mom makes snud, some snide comment to cary grant and then he just goes ooh <laughs> or something like that oh yeah <laughs> <laughs> I, I forget how do you feel about the whole scene in the elevator when she asks are you two trying to kill my son and the whole elevator just starts laughing <laughs> I, I love that scene she starts <laughs> it laughing pretty, it was pretty fun <laughs> it's pretty good yeah it's just like <laughs> they start laughing everybody else starts laughing she starts laughing he's not laughing <laughs> <laughs> it's fun no, this movie understands that there's more more different kinds of suspense and more different kinds of payoffs than just violent action you know you watch so many modern thrillers and it's like the only thing that can possibly happen is a group of guys surround our hero and then he decimates the group of guys or they decimate him. And, you know, everybody loves a good action scene like that, but there's just so many other different kinds of fun, violent or suspenseful confrontations that can happen. And this movie has a number of them. So this elevator fight or the elevator fight in Captain America, Winter Soldier. Uh, this? Yep. Totally. I think so. <laughs> I mean, I, it is worth asking. Good I, question. I acknowledge <laughs> that if we if we had a poorly cut together scene of uh, Cary Grant beating up everyone in the elevator, <laughs> that would be pretty great. It'd be awesome. <laughs> uh, I, it, Nathan, you're making me think of Man from Uncle, which, mm -hmm. like it or lump it, it does things like that. Like, oh, you thought we were going to have a boat chase action scene, but actually. We're going to put that in the background and make you laugh while the other guy eats a sandwich because yes. he dislikes his partner right. and hopes he gets blown up and then finally decides he'll rescue him. Right. But that you're not even going to get to watch the boat fight, really. Right. That kind of stuff is funny. And that's that's a Hitchcockian idea of a scene. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. I mean, this movie has uh, hanging on from heights. It has outwitting the bad guys with just clever ploys, whether it's the auction or the mm -hmm. elevator. It has the whole drunken, drunk driving, weird, like, suspense scene, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Uh, which we're at, I guess we could just talk about it. There's uh, the scene that I always forget and am vaguely baffled is in this movie just because it's, it's so silly. And it's kind of great, I guess. But the, I don't know, what do you guys think about the old uh, Cary Grant drives drunk? It, I, f I felt like it was... Did a surprisingly good job of evoking that. Yes. The double vision yeah. and stuff. Yeah. The double vision, the 
the way he acts it out actually makes me think, I bet he's done that a couple of times. My wife said to me as we were watching, (laughs) she said, oh, I remember the first time we watched this movie. You told me about a time in your not recent past where you drove drunk and I was angry with you for, and I said, oh, yeah. So we we got to relive that. But yeah, now now that you've forced me to admit it, Jake, yes, I have had those experiences. I'm not proud of them. And they're a long time ago. But yeah, this movie actually does for all of Cary Grant's weird faces and stuff. Uh, pretty credible job of evoking. A pretty credible job of evoking. I'm trying to get something done and I'm I'm drunk and I can't see and I'm swerving all over the place. Cary Grant also is just a master clown. Like his faces are so great and hmm. everything that he does, like you can tell this guy came up through clown school. He, he, know, he knows how to pull a face. And then all of his drunk acting is really funny with the police and the Emil Klinger, you know, and all the. But man, that whole the drunkenness play acting goes on forever. It, does it go on really forever. does. The movie just makes you watch drunk Cary Grant a long time. Well, one thing that. Hitchcock, I think, a place where Hitchcock has aged poorly, and it's not his fault, but it's just true, is the phony backgrounds in the driving scenes and even in some of the places where Cary Grant clearly wasn't on location, but we just... just We're not actually in the trains, in a train station right now. Right. We're just going to project. Usually, you can just forgive that kind of stuff, but for an actual action scene, you kind of want to feel like Cary Grant's really there and audiences of the time would have barely noticed it it was just a conceit that they were used to but man it is feels so corny when people get into cars in these old movies to me actually the drunk scene is done about as well just because the light in the shadow i was gonna say yeah the drunk scene actually is not as bad as the any of the taxi scenes yeah the taxi scenes Mm -hmm. are just always as far as that goes yeah, I would say the taxi scenes, the train scene, and the, there's a one random shot in front of the UN that where Cary Grant. Very clearly, yeah. Which I don't think it was their fault. I think they weren't allowed to film in front of the UN. In fact, I remember reading that they huh. stole the shot of Cary Grant. Like, they didn't have a license for it. They just pulled up, had their camera in a truck, said, hey, Cary, go run and walk into the UN building real quick. And he did it. And that's how they got the shot of him huh. walking into the UN. But, yeah, it's it does go on for a long time. but. And then it goes on for a long time. We're going to go to the villain's house and we're going to meet his w- play wife and she's going to not back up Cary Grant. And mm-hmm. All of which works the first time you see the movie. Just I thought fine. that was fun. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it definitely plays with the whole nightmare conceit of everything's kind of disappearing around me and no one will back up my story and I know what happened, but I'm doubting my own sanity in, in its silly, cheerful way. This movie plays all that stuff well. Yeah, I actually found myself wishing it played it just a little better and had a little bit more plants besides we ni- we didn't see bourbon spilled all over the couch. She said it was and then and then we had the the liquor cabinet with no liquor in it and right. that was kind of that and then the wife or whatever was all that we really got. Uh-huh. I wish it would have played with my head a little bit more. Right. Uh-huh. Which, which Hitchcock is more than capable of doing and does in other movies really well. He just, He's cared about other things in this movie, which again makes me wonder why he decided to throw the kitchen sink at it. If he wasn't going to throw the kitchen sink at each part of, if he's doing a greatest hits, mm-hmm. don't, so, don't sell yourself short. Like this is a fun conceit. You, you can do it really well and it works just fine, but 
I just found myself wishing that that would have been more fun. That's where you have to kind of agree with the New Yorker guy who said this is actually functioning halfway as self-parody. Like Hitchcock's just not taking any of this even as seriously as he mm-hmm. takes his. And this is it is important to remember this comes off of Vertigo, which was not a financial hit, which is a very dour and kind of weird and creepy movie and, and very personal and very explicitly dealing with Hitch's hangs, hangups and obsessions and his weird view of women and stuff. So I, I think this is very self, you know, this is consciously like, let's do something fun and light and breezy and commercial and let's not take any of it too seriously. And let's not ask the audience to take it too seriously. Let's just have fun. And it worked. This movie made lots of money and was popular and everybody liked it. So you can't fault Alfred Hitchcock's commercial sense in that way. But yes, going back to the movie, especially for the 12th time, you're like, I wish there was a little bit more meat on this bone, a little bit more to actually interact with. It is so surface level. But for a movie with absolutely nothing to say, it has a lot of surface pleasures that are worth going back to. But I'll tell you what those surface pleasures aren't. They are the, well, I guess we're not quite there yet. We're going to go to the hotel. We're going to find George Kaplan's stuff. We're going to have the elevator scene. We're going to have the awesome UN scene where the guy gets the knife in the back. I will just point out, this movie makes no sense. This plot makes just makes no sense and got a room full of crowded people and somebody's going to throw a knife in someone's back nobody's going to see anything right except for him falling over and then of course the one thing he's going to do is pick pull, up the knife pull the knife out of his back and stand there and pose for a camera mm-hmm. that's also going to happen to be there in the right place at the right time <laughs> right. there is nothing about this movie that makes any sense whatsoever and then he's going to manage to just run out of the un and escape Having murdered a diplomat. <laughs> right. Put on one pair of sunglasses, get in a train, meet the world's most beautiful, sultry, secret agent woman, have an affair with her, and then she's going to set him up to be assassinated by a crop, a duster. crop duster assassin. <laughs> like that. Which, of course, you know, our bad guy would have already been on the exact train that he would have fled to with the girl there ready to go. Right. You know, all of it. It makes so, makes so much sense. It's so... But, you know, one one way that it does make sense is as a nightmare, as a just movie dream, which Hitchcock was good at delivering, it works. I mean, I think it makes emotional sense. And that's why you the first couple of times of watching this movie, you don't question it that much and you don't really want to question it that much. No, you just uh, agree to suspend disbelief. Right. Because it's fun. It's fun. And you've you've had those nightmares where you're you you know you're innocent but everybody's after you or you're in the middle of a cornfield and there's just the feeling of menace and something's coming after you and you don't i mean yeah I mean, not not to get too highfalutin about it but i think hitchcock is as the talented director that he was he is tapping into primal feelings of of fear and of desire and of all these things and so it, it has a nightmare logic to it that makes a lot of sense. Like, if an assassin came after him in those cornfields, it wouldn't be nearly as effective as just this weird mundane detail suddenly taking on a life of its own and trying to kill him. You know, it all has a kind of mm-hmm. a kind of logic to it that's emotional. Yeah, and, uh, and, and that sort of dream menace. Yeah. I'm here at a crossroads in the middle of a cornfield. And so there's scenery, there are cars coming down and the, oh, there's a car that's, pl- and there's a plane that kind of keeps buzzing around. And Yeah, I mean, that's like pure 
pure Freud, pure young, pure. Yeah. And you can imagine yourself being in that dream and waiting for the other shoe to drop. And then sort of your subconscious just sort of latches on to one detail in the dream to come after you because it's waiting for the. Yeah. It's almost it, in that kind of dream. It's almost like you chose the plane. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, choose your destroyer. Mm-hmm. Choose the mm-hmm. form of your destruction. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Stay puff marshmallow. Right, yeah. Yeah. I mean, even like, yeah, and then you get back and you tell the dream. And then for some reason, I thought the one way to not draw attention to myself on a dark train would be to walk around with sunglasses on. <laughs> yeah. Can you believe it? <laughs> what an idiot. But yeah. in the dream, it worked. Yeah. <laughs> well, before we talk about that, too much, though, I think we're to Eve Kendall, so we got to talk about her and, you know, just the Eve Kendall of it all. So, Cary Grant meets old Eve Kendall on the train. Mm-hmm. She covers for him. Yep. She's not particularly a very realistic character. She walks around dressed up with, like, a, a perfect haircut and an outfit and... Everybody back in the 50s did that. Everybody back in the... That's true. That's true. You talk to your grandma or grandpa, they're just like, yeah, we all had perfectly coiffed hair that would take three hours to do on our your average train journey. Anyway, that's not good faith criticism because even despite the things that are problematic about Eve, it's not problematic that she has a haircut because that's just the movie that we're in. She's a starlet Yep. in an Alfred Hitchcock movie. Yep. Anyway... Cary Grant and I keep on to say Eva Mendez. Cary Grant and Eva Mendez get in that train and they they have their their they have what uh, a discussion. Jake, <laughs> they have a discussion. Oh. They exchange witty banner and the the movie pretty much grinds to an, an absolute halt. Yeah, and I imagine that most moviegoers at the time didn't care because they were so on the edge of their seat with the brash. I don't know how else to say it with the eroticism of mm-hmm. what this thing was doing. She was very forward. She was a very forward young lady. Yes, that is true. I don't know, guys. What is it? What, what do we need to say about this scene? It was a lot. Yeah. yeah. It, it, it was a lot. It was far more scandalous than anything in Black Widow. Yeah. For example. Right. Yeah. Well... I'm reminded of some article that our good friend, Pastor Joseph Bailey, sent us one time that was written within the last couple of years. I forget what the publication was, but it was about how they just don't, we just don't care about sex. Blood Knife, I think, was the publication. Yes. Yes, that's right. Yeah. I knew it was something weird like that. Yeah. But we just don't care about sex in movies anymore. We care about violence. We might even care about some kind of sterile pornography, but we do not care about sex, sexual tension, sexual tension or sex. Well, and part of it is because of uh, sex politics, right? Right. Like, for there to be real sexual attention, it has to be a man being credibly a man and a woman credibly being a woman. Right. And even if you're trying to subvert that, you're subverting it intentionally based on realities that are real. Right. Yeah. This movie is a cartoon of that, but it's still a cartoon of of real things. Mm Mm-hmm. And it's a fairly potent cartoon. I mean, I don't know. It makes you real. It does make you realize how sexless modern movies are. Even, even something like a Jason Bourne. I, I don't know why that's always our example, but it's just uh, the first Bourne movie has one of those standard gratuitous sex scenes. And, you know, I mean, I wouldn't want to let a teenage boy watch that. And if I was watching it with my wife or something, I'd probably close my eyes. But 
but it's over so quick and it's so kind of just bloodless and representative and it doesn't that was the one though that jake had talked about in terms of what's her name's bedroom eyes yeah okay maybe maybe that's a bad example actually because you have the whole haircut scene that actually does kind of achieve yeah there's some real build up there and tension right we were talking about skyfall and the conversation is coming back to me which which has another scene that's kind of like that that right. involves Miss Moneypenny giving him a shave or whatever. Yeah, so those are actually movies that have some real sexual tension. But so many times, even in later James Bond movies, even in any Daniel Craig movie, it's just like, we're going to kiss and then we're going to cut. That's basically what a sex scene is, mm-hmm. usually, unless it's just you're watching Game of Thrones or something like that and it's just pornography. But the vocabulary of sexuality that we grew up with, that we all grew up with, was that. And it is weird to go back to a movie that's going to linger on, I don't know, I'm, I'm avoiding saying the word foreplay, but I, that's that's really the word. Yeah, it's foreplay. It's erotic tension. It's, I mean, you get the sex starts in the kitchen scene. Right. So, at the dinner, dinner table and that's where it's starting. And then... They're just kissing in his car. In, in her. In her car, yeah. Yeah. For a long time. For a long time. It goes and on. And bantering. And bantering. And, and saying things like, I'm a big girl. And in all the right places, too. I mean, it's just, it's really smutty, actually. It's really. It is, yeah. yeah it's like, uh, kind of shocking. <laughs> yeah, I think as a kid, when I saw this, or whatever, I don't really remember what age I was when I first saw this, but I assumed a certain level of elegance just because I didn't know any better. You know, mm-hmm. I was just like, oh, this is an elegant adult thing that I don't really understand. Now that I am an adult and I understand adult things a little bit better. I'm like, oh, no, this is actually like a, like Alfred Hitchcock never outgrew being a kind of a smutty 13-year-old kid about this, actually. Yeah. Like, as, as much as it has the trappings of elegance, this is really pretty. This is a scene out of a dime store novel. Right. This is really juvenile. This yep. is, yeah. I mean, he is, he is evocative in the way that he skirts the censor by putting them in bed with a camera angle. It's, 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 a, it's a, some amazing filmmaking, if I can. I mean, like, he just tilts the camera a little bit and they're leaning against a wall and they compose themselves such that they're suddenly in bed, but it's all symbolic. They're not, they're just standing in a train train, train car doing as much as they possibly can under that particular ratings code. But I don't know. I guess the lesson is don't think that just because a work of literature or a work of, or a movie or whatever, I mean, we say this all the time, but just because they weren't allowed to do certain things or cross certain lines doesn't mean that they couldn't do a lot of damage while staying on one side of those lines. And Alfred Hitchcock was intentionally subversive in that way. He loved being subversive that way. He loved thumbing his nose at the censors while appearing to appease them. The famous example of that is in the movie Notorious, where Cary Grant and Ingrid Bergman are only allowed to kiss. Like the the, the ratings code said that they could only kiss for. I don't remember what it was, but let's say it's like one and a half seconds or something like that. Like the, the longest kiss that you were allowed. And so, he just has them stand and kind of dance around each other and just keep kissing and kissing and kissing and kissing and kissing. And each one of those kisses is under whatever the rule was, one and a half seconds. But he ends mm-hmm. up obeying the letter of the law and actually making something that's way more sexually charged than it would have been if they just had one long, you know, Princess Leia and Han Solo style. Yeah, it's the... Take turns eating the apple. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. From what? It's uh, it's the details are sort of eluding me right now, but it was another censor skirt thing where you have a, you're not allowed to kiss at all. So 
she takes a very luscious bite of the apple mm. and then he does and then she does and then he does it ends up managing to be much more erotic than if they had just kissed yeah much more suggestive yeah hmm. i mean it is it is weird it is it is weird how sort of prudish a wicked shot of nudity can be and how erotic eating an apple can be in the hands of the right or wrong director as it were mm -hmm. anyway i've watched this movie with multiple groups and with i don't know i've seen this movie a bunch and somehow i've seen it with you know different christian groups and different you know at different things and i've never been with a group that's not super uncomfortable during the train scene so i don't know you guys got any more deep insights into that i mean this is not much more to be said about it and you really don't want to linger on it too long nope all right, but what we do want to linger on is the iconic cornfield chase thing, which comes right up. After our night of passion, we end up in the cornfield for whatever reason, for a reason that makes no sense. I mean, there's nothing but any, there, there's, there's no logic here. Why would the bad guys send him out there? Why would they hire a crop duster to machine gun him down? What's <laughs> like, why not just break his neck and throw him off the train? Or, or do any number of, like, like, almost any plan you could name would be, make more sense than the plan that our two villains, who just happened to be on the train that he randomly ran onto, unless, I mean, was there a way they could have anticipated that? No. There was no way that, it doesn't make any sense that Eve Kendall would even know to be waiting for him on that train, correct? But she was. But she was. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Just, just trying to think if the, there's logic there that- No. No. There's no logic. Mm -mm. No, they were just there. The police are trying to catch up to him. Right. And he runs from the UN, gets in a train, or gets in a taxi, goes to the train station, jumps a stile, and gets on this train where they're waiting for him. And Eve Kendall's already waiting. You know, it's it's not like, like we could have... We could have had Leonard following him, and then the bad guys are like, quick, hop on the train and set up our... <clears throat> no, but they're all already there. Right. They have to be because he barely gets on in time to elude the cops who are just on his heels. You know, it's amazing. I'm not a plot guy anyway, but I don't think I've ever really thought about how much this movie doesn't make sense until now. And I've seen it a bunch. <clears throat> it doesn't make sense. She, he's gonna, she's like, I'll call and talk to the guy and here's the instructions. Get on a bus, go down Highway 41 into Indiana, wait at a crossroads. He does all those things then he goes back to the hotel, finds her, and has to figure out that she set him up. Right. <laughs> yeah. Like... Go to this specific place so that something terrible can happen to you. Yeah. Well, okay. All right. Doesn't make any sense. Impossible. That call couldn't have come at... He couldn't have checked out at seven because I... She got the call. He sent me a message through at nine. What? <laughs> Well, Hitchcock famously pioneered the term MacGuffin, which if anyone out there doesn't know, it's the thing that everybody wants that drives the plot forward. It's the arc in Raiders of the Lost Ark. It's the, you know, the doohickey that James Bond has to keep the villains from getting and everybody's it's fighting the over. the purple glowy thing in every Marvel movie. Yeah, exactly. And Hitchcock said it never matters. It never matters what it is. It just has to, it's just a thing. And, you know, some modern movies like J.J. Uh, Abrams thinks he's being very clever in uh, Mission Impossible 3 when they're all like, the rabbit's foot! And nobody even bothers to explain what the rabbit's foot is. It's just 
It's MacGuffin. And I feel like I saw a movie recently where somebody was like, we have to get the MacGuffin. Like it was actually. Yeah. I, I feel like a, I saw that too. A joke, maybe like in a animated film or children's film or something like that. Then, oh, I know what it was. What was it? It was this, it was uh, the Halloween thing. Oh, the, the, haunted, the haunted Mansion. The Muppets. Muppets Haunted Mansion. I actually called it a MacGuffin. Yeah, there was MacGuffin in that. That's right. Well, there you go, folks. You would have seen it too if you'd watched Muppets Haunted Mansion and your life would have been improved by watching that thing. No, I'm being serious. It was kind of fun. It was uh, fun. So, he goes to the cornfield and this is Hitchcock elongating time. We are going to build up the tension and the tension and the tension and we're going to wait and the car, the bus is going to come and the guy's going to get off and the guy's going to get on and it's like a Sergio Leone gunfight scene or something like that. Like you're, you're just, you know, something's coming, but we're just going to draw it out as long as we possibly Except can. Except I'm not bored by Sergio Leone gunfight scenes. I'm not bored. I, you know, I'll, I'll be the classic film defender guy here. I'll wear that. I like I like the I like the scene. I think it's decent, Jake. I don't. I think it's iconic for no reason whatsoever. <laughs> How dare you attack this scene? <laughs> no, I mean it plays for me. It plays on my real fears of I don't know. Like I've gotten lost on highways before, or I've had cars pull behind me in the middle of the night when I'm on a country road. And for somebody who lives in the Midwest. I have a real fear of the Midwest, actually. I have a fear. I, I have a, I, I'm enough of a weird, like, guy that likes to think of himself as urban that I have a fear of what would happen if I ever got lost in the woods or went down the wrong road or was just on the some barren hide highway. Like, that whole kind of idea of there's something creepy lurking on the fringes of civilization, even American Midwestern civilization is really evocative to me. So, I, I find the whole idea of just being on this lonely highway waiting for your doom, waiting for whatever form your nightmare takes to be, to be pretty creepy, actually. It's some of the same creepiness that Psycho gets right, actually, in that, you know, it just anyone, any hotel that you drive by, any old motel, there could be a killer lurking there. There could be something, you know, behind closed doors, just that, that, that kind of feeling. I don't know. It, this, this Hitchcock has definitely, definitely taps into something of my own nightmares here. So, I don't know. Is there anything else to say about the cornfield scene? It, it, it doesn't make sense. Also, like the particular maneuvers, as I believe Jake pointed out on Mike, don't make sense. Like, why would Cary Grant just wait for the plane to do certain things? Why does he decide to stand in front of a truck until it runs him over? I guess he just really wants that truck to stop. Why does the crop duster run into Mm-hmm. the yeah. thing and blow up. I don't know. Doesn't make any sense. Because right. we're constructing a cool set piece. We are constructing a mm-hmm. cool set piece and Hitchcock is very, very concerned with the minutiae, but not very concerned with the t- the connective tissue. As long as it feels right, it's mm-hmm. right. Uh, okay, then we have what I consider to be the true boring stretch of the movie, which is we're going to have the professor show up and he's going to explain the plot that he already explained this movie has like some lame exposition dumps the first he does the first one is lame after they get out of the un we're gonna cut to the and the guys and the the professor in the room some of the dumbest exposition it's it's like the worst trope now you all know everyone in this room knows that we're doing this thing and you know that it works this way and and you're all aware that if 
this were to happen, that that would happen. Because we've all discussed. Right. <laughs> and furthermore... You yourself, Carl, you were just saying the other day that if... <laughs> <laughs> now, have we covered everything that has possibly been said about our plan since the very beginning in summary form? You know, Hitchcock was probably right. People probably are that stupid that they just they just want that scene. I don't know. Well, but what it what it does is it makes it makes you feel like actually don't worry about anything you think is a plot hole. This movie has a boring, reasonable explanation. Just don't worry about it. Right, and we're we're not actually even going to really give you that explanation for any of the real plot holes. But no, <laughs> just know there's a bunch of boring people somewhere <laughs> that are discussing in a room it. sitting around a table. They have this all figured out. <laughs> They're not in They called my writing team. Right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. And basically, we are just seeing Hitchcock and his writers. <laughs> now, let us explain the movie to you. But then the really dumb part is that professor guy shows up and he explains everything to Roger Thornhill that we've already heard again. Like, we get two of the exact same explanations. I have no idea why. But I trust Hitchcock was probably right. I trust he probably knew his audience and thought that they needed to be anchored or oriented by something boring if he was going to get away with all these. And then our professor, FBI agent expert who's been trailing our criminal mastermind for years gets fooled by uh, Cary Grant who asks some question like, now, you say that he's taking her away here and there tonight, right? Oh, okay. Say... Why don't you go find me some bourbon? Bring some back for yourself. Right, I'll do that. He fell for it. <laughs> he fell for it. Oh, while Cary Grant was signaling to the audience exactly what was about to right. come. <laughs> yeah, Cary Grant might as well turn to the audience <laughs> and just wink. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I mean, I like it. It's fine. It's, I, yeah, but as long as we're talking about plot holes, that's all I'm saying. I mean, I think it's... It's worth noting, I can never remember what the plot of this movie is. And it's so simple. I couldn't either like, come into it. And I feel like I've seen it. I feel like I've watched it pretty recently. Yeah. I mean, I must have seen this movie 10 times. And watching it again, I was like, oh, yeah. He's subbing in for a guy that never existed. Like, Yeah. I had forgotten that too. Yeah. It just, it just does not matter. It's all about Cary Grant being awesome and the set pieces, the individual set pieces. I guess the other thing that is actually worth pointing out about those boring parts is that Hitchcock does not do anything to spice them up. And I think it's because he wants the exciting parts to be exciting. He understands that there needs to be valleys in order for there to be peaks. And so for a guy who's so acclaimed as an awesome technical filmmaker who would storyboard every shot, who would think, you know, have everything controlled to a suffocating degree, oftentimes, and, and for a guy who acclaimed as someone who would do show-offy things, often many, many scenes go by without anything show-offy happening. It's just the most basic, you know, coverage, over-the-shoulder shots, just cut together, you know, like nothing's happening to, this is just like the most generic thing possible. And it's precisely because he wants it to pop when it does pop. The best example of that is when early on, when Cary Grant goes into the restaurant, he's talking to his friends, it's all really, really boring. And then suddenly, we're going to have a musical sting and we're going to have this fast zoom in on the two thugs that are clocking him for the first mm -hmm. time. And it's like, we're mundane, 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 and then punctuate it with something awesome. So, we're getting to the end here, guys. Is there anything else you want to talk about before we get to the house? I don't think so. All right. So, we get to Van Damme's awesome house. 
What an awesome house. Very Frank Lloyd Wright. Very Frank yeah, Lloyd Wright. Yeah, it is. Mid-century. Mid-century, yeah. And, yeah I and love that. I love that house. Big open floor plan, just mm-hmm. enough like wood and stuff to, to give it a little rustic flavor. That house does not exist, unfortunately. It's not a real Frank Lloyd Wright. It's just a set and, and a beautiful matte painting for the wide shots, which if you don't know what that is, it means some guy painted it to look realistic. So, yeah, but... That house rocks. What do they call those things? Cantilevers? Is that what it is when like stones and things just just jut out? Like, I don't know. Mm, that sounds right, but... I don't even know if that's how you say it. I do not, I'm not an architectural expert. I'm not an architect, nor do I play one on this podcast. Yeah, that's right. It's a cantilever. Yeah. Like when it's... Uh, how would you describe it? When it's just like a part of a building that just juts out and isn't supported, mm-hmm. like a beam that's not supported by anything. Only supported at the end right at one end yeah yeah i know it's awesome and that yeah i just love that house and i love sneaking around and i love trying to get the letter to her and i love the villains being as gay as they possibly can there at the end i don't know that i have anything else much to say about that scene though besides that it's really evocative location yeah then we're running across mount rushmore Mm-hmm. what do you think about the mount rushmore chase ben Oh, I should say, I'm I'm just going to steal stuff that I've read from here and there. Yeah. So, Cary Grant has a uniform change, like a white knight uniform change. He gets, you see him in white, basically, where right. you haven't, you've just seen him in like a neutral color before. Mm-hmm. This is stuff other people say, folks. And yeah. And so, he, it's like, finally, he's taking action, you know, mm-hmm. like he's the one, he's not just reacting, he's like, going to go after the girl, going to save her. You know, it's funny, I don't think of Cary Grant. If you track his character, he is very passive bumbling character but i don't mm-hmm. really think of him that way maybe because just because he's cary grant and he's so he, he's cary grant he, he, he well he's not passive yeah. i mean he's gonna walk into the auction and go sit down with the guys that are trying to kill him he's gonna go he's gonna mm-hmm. he's gonna go back to the house with the police mm-hmm. and do the thing okay well that's not gonna work okay fine he's gonna go figure out where this guy that he's supposed to be lives and break into his house He's going to call the porter and, like, ask if he's been seen. He's going to, oh, now I've got, okay. All right, right. now I know I picked up this thing and something about the UN. All right, I'm going to go to the UN. I'm going to find the guy. Oh, it's not the guy. Oh, I'm going to run. I'm going to do the, he's just very actively, anybody else, most people in that situation would be happy to be alive and let the story die, pay their $2 fine, like mom said. Right. Let the story die and gone back to their normal life and hope that nothing followed them. Yeah, that's true. As I think about it, even when he's captured by the two guys at the beginning, he's going to try and get out the door and the door. Yes. Locked. Yeah. yeah. So, so, so the change is more that like at the end, he has a handle on it. Right. Like he knows positively what he wants. Not just like, let's figure this out, but like, okay, I figured it out. Here's what I'll do in response mm-hmm. to the entire situation. Yeah, yeah, I guess if the word passive even occurs to me, it's because he's trying so many things and he's getting swatted down yes. at every turn. Like, nothing ever works. He never gets ahead of the game until the end. Mm-hmm. When he's jumped to the head by the professor. Right. Right. Yeah, but then we're running across Mount Rushmore. That's all sets and paintings and stuff like that, but it, it works really well. Even like yeah. you don't have to put on your old movie glasses to see for most of that scene. Minus the people, the lame like dolls that fall off when anytime someone falls, they suddenly transform into a mannequin and kind of go, ah! but other than that, I think it's 
Or we just get the guy laying down and we're going to spin him around. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's very silly looking. Um, which which part? When people fall off, like when people... One of the... Uh, one of the, the I think the thug that... You not know, Leonard, but the other one. Oh, yeah, the guy who throws the knives. Yeah. When he goes over the edge, he gets that sort of like laying down posture. Yeah. Like we just and took, we, a, we just took we, a cut out a pose we, of him. Yeah, we cut it and then we spin it around yeah. down and make it smaller as it goes right. down into the canyon. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Or off the side of the mountain. It looked better than Jack Nicholson falling off the tower in Batman. Oh man, yeah, that's pathetic. Yeah. There's lots of bad falls. For some reason, people falling, falling is, is, is really hard, it's hard to do. The greatest, of course, is Hans Gruber. You oh, can't beat that. that one's awesome. And that's because they just dropped poor Alan Rickman. Like they just... They just had, they just, they green screened, you know, but you can find the footage of wow. Alan Rickman terrified for his life as he drops, you know, a couple stories into like one of those big pillows. Wow. Basically. But it was worth it because. <laughs> I didn't know that. Hans Gruber's death is one of the best deaths in villain history. Maybe the best villain death. Oh yeah. You've got that sting, musical sting. Right. The Die Hard series mm-hmm. behind him as he falls. Yep. Yeah. And then you've got Bozo the Clown being like, I hope that wasn't a hostage. I might I might have to deduct some points for that. But That's how Die Hard is, man. Yep. <laughs> die Hard gets lots of points given and lots of points deducted <laughs> for many, many reasons. But yeah, falls are falls are hard to do. Falls are hard to do. Muller Ram has a dumb fall in Temple of Doom. Hmm. His henchmen yeah. have great falls when when Indy cuts the rope bridge, all the bodies flail really convincingly as they fall, but then Muller Ram falls and bounces off a rock or something like that. Yeah. It's, it's really kind of kind of lame, unfortunately. And then we cut to the alligators eating some someone's discarding carded clothing or something like that. So Spielberg could not improve on Hitchcock's Crummy Falls. But yeah, I'm not sure what else to say about the Rushmore sequence. It's fun. It's always a little shorter than I remember it for such an iconic scene. Huh. What? It just, I don't know, maybe I was just in a rush to get that movie over with, but. Felt long to you? Felt kind of long to me. I like that. I think that's probably my favorite scene of the movie. I I think it's because it feel it looks like everyone is getting hurt and like anyone could actually just fall off accidentally at any time. Right. Without a fight. And I, it makes me feel like. It's oh, almost maybe. like that. It's almost as great as that Shang-Chi. Uh, uh, scaffolding fight. Scaffolding fight, yeah. Right up there. Yeah. <laughs> well, I like the fact that it's as awkward as it would be. I mean, we don't see enough of that in movies even today, or especially today. Like, it is fun that Cary Grant, even when he's, like, wrestling with the guy, it's, like, it's just kind of awkward. And neither one of them wants to fall over. And, yeah. like, if Eve Kendall does slip and die, it's going to just be because she's wearing the wrong shoes and she kind of slipped. And, it, you know, it's not it's not overly dramatized. It feels like it all plays out about, like... Mm-hmm. How it would play out if you were slowly, awkwardly trying to get away from assailants across. Even Leonard, like Leonard's the, Leonard's the most feared henchman, but he almost falls and dies before right, he yeah. even gets anywhere. Yeah. That's what they should have done, actually. That would have been funny. But <laughs> then you wouldn't get the wonderful cavalry arriving and... He, and, he, and he takes him out from that range with like a handgun or something yeah, like yeah. that. <laughs> it's pretty awesome. And then we decided we needed to give James Mason... Not very sporting, is it? Or something like... Final yeah. line. Yeah. Van Damme's going to be 
cool and urbane to the very, very end. I still exist in this motion picture. <laughs> yeah, oh. yeah, that's basically all it is. <laughs> well, yeah, you are the villain. <laughs> yep. <laughs> I guess we don't care about you. And then the ultimate, we don't care about the payoff. We really only care about the setup. We're trying, we're going for the girl. We're going for the girl. We're going for the girl. And we're on our honeymoon. Climbing into bed together. And a dirty, dirty visual pun that a 12-year-old would think was funny will end this classic Hollywood, (laughs) old Hollywood classic. Uh, The more we talk about it, the more I want to watch it again. (laughs) (laughs) Well, let's litigate it. Where do you guys put this? Is this a movie that you would recommend that our listeners watch? Is this fun? I don't know, Ben. How many faces on Mount Rushmore out of five? Four, I believe. Uh, We need more to work with. Mm -hmm. How many... Boy, what are, what's something that... How many little statues filled with microfilm? Yes. Or something. How many little statues filled with microfilm out of... <laughs> yes, they couldn't figure that out. The FBI couldn't figure that out. That's how he's doing it. <laughs> <laughs> Whoa. Yeah, yeah, he keeps yeah. going to these art shows and bidding on these pieces. He's a real art collector. Well, he is gay. By the way, that auction scene is pretty funny. I do like that auction scene. Yeah, I like the auction scene. And I like it when a hero can get himself out of something with, mm-hmm. by being clever as opposed to just having more brute strength or more. It's one of the reasons why I think Doctor Strange, while not my favorite Marvel movie by a long shot, in fact, one of my least favorite Marvel movies, I like the ending of Doctor Strange, the way that he defeats the monster actually required a little thought on Doctor Strange's part as opposed to being having superior. You find the glowy thing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah true. exactly. So, I like intelligence. I like intelligence winning in these kinds of things as opposed to brute strength or heart. I mean, it's always it's always usually brute strength or you just know that you love or you know that you can dance, Chris Pratt, or you know that, you know, we're a family or, but it's, it's nice when it's just like, no, I'm, I'm smarter than the bad guy. And this, that means the screenwriter had to be smarter than the audience. And if the screenwriter successfully was, then the audience is more entertained. So, Ben, mm-hmm. how many statues of microfilm out of 90 do you give to this film? On a level of personal enjoyment, I'll give it probably 75. On a level of recommending it to other people, probably give it like... I don't. I don't know. It, it depends on who 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 are we talking about? A thirteen-year-old boy? <laughs> <laughs> Zero. Yeah. Uh, are, are we talking about even an? I don't. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know how to how to recommend it or not because I don't. I don't really want to recommend it. I think it's a good movie to see if you're a film buff on some level. And the eroticism is. I mean, I haven't seen it since I was aware right. that it was in there. So I guess I must have been a kid. So the eroticism is very intense. Yeah. And it goes on for a long time. It goes on for a long time. And uh, yeah, it was hard to take. Yeah. So, I, I don't I don't know how to answer your question. I feel like I'll give an unfair uh, answer either way. Right. Sorry. Well, I don't know. Maybe maybe Jake can help with that question. I bet he can. <clears throat> Jake, what do you think? I don't think I can help. Can't help? <laughs> All right. <laughs> I well, feel kind of the same way. But I I feel like I've never enjoyed watching this movie less than I did this go around. Hmm. Right. But there were any number of, to be fair, there were, without going into them, there were any number of external factors that true. may have influenced that. You had to watch it on the deadline this morning in order to come and podcast with us. Which yeah. Is I was gener- going to watch it last night with Amanda and then things happened. So. Right. Generally not the best way to Mm-mm. watch a movie. 
Yeah, sitting in bed with a headache watching it on your laptop. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. Premier North by Northwest experience. Good memories. Yeah. I'll, I'll make a recommendation. Watch this movie. It's great. Just fast forward the crap out of about 10 minutes in the middle on the train there with the chick. You have the power. You have the remote. Very easy. You won't accidentally fast forward past anything that'll be all that erotic and fast forward. And you'll miss nothing. You'll have a more short, punchy, exciting <laughs> movie experience. And yeah, you, you, you'll miss none of the plot. You'll miss no important details. And you know, it's the same, same thing that you do with Braveheart. You just don't watch the waterfall scene. You'll be all right. Except for you probably won't because Braveheart probably has other stuff. But, <laughs> you know, I'm not a fan of VidAngel or services like that because I do believe in artistic expression to some degree. But I am a fan of dealing with these things on a personal level the way that you want to. And this is an easy one to deal with. So, there you go. Minus the Eve Kendall scene, I would give this 800 microfilm. I think we said Out 90. 90. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I think this movie rules. <laughs> you must. Ah, it's kind of boring, but in some parts, you know, it's, it's, it's slow by modern standards. But for, as, as, for if you're a film buff, if you care anything about this stuff, then it's pretty exciting. I wish that we had 3% more heart to Cary Grant's character, maybe. And I don't love Eva Marie Saint. I don't know. We didn't talk that much about her. Do you guys like her as a character? No, not especially. I think, well, as a character, the role's fine, but I'm not a huge fan of her. It's not like, you know, Grace Kelly glows even when she's playing cold and you know she's a likable person i don't know grace kelly is mm -hmm. yeah. yeah yeah but even marie saint is like a space alien in this movie yeah hitchcock's asking her to do a bunch of ridiculous unplayable things in order to make that work you kind of have to have the star wattage of a grant or a grace kelly or jimmy stewart you kind of really need a-listers uh yeah you can think of five thousand actors who just if they're not Cary Grant, this movie's such a horrible drag. Yeah. But he's fun to watch on screen because he's handsome and charming and charismatic. He just has that star wattage, the je ne sais quoi. Right. And so, and, you know, and it's overplayed in the movie. It's really just like, you've got one note. It's your super charming, sexy man. Mm -hmm. But, you know, somebody like Grant can credibly pull that off for two hours and 20 minutes. Right. And he can modulate it just enough in any given scene to make it a little interesting. And yeah. So you've got to be able to play off of that and play opposite that Ingrid Bergman can do that kind of thing. Yeah. The great Hitchcock women are Ingrid Bergman and obviously Grace Kelly is the, yeah. the great Hitchcock woman. And there's a reason for that. Yeah. And she just doesn't quite, doesn't quite make you ready to see her in another movie. Well, the weird thing is she actually feels like, to me at least, she's doing her best as a good actress to make this stuff play. And that's not really what you want. Like, Grace Kelly may well give, technically, a worse performance, but she's just got that that it fact, that that factor, that X factor, that, that star wattage, which is really what you want. Mm -hmm. Hitchcock's telling the story with his camera. He doesn't care about the actors. We just need people who can exist on screen. And unfortunately for whatever that actress, Eva Marie Saint, like, She's trying to act, and that's that's actually the wrong move. Mm -hmm. You want James Mason to just be Urbane James Mason, and you want types, 
and mm-hmm. she's not a type. She's actually giving you, she's trying, under, buried underneath all the artifice, she's trying to give you a real Eve Kindle. And there's moments where you can feel what that might be and you can respect what she's trying to do. I don't think she's bad at it, but it's just not exactly what this movie wanted. Yep. Mm-hmm. You cast that part today, you got to go to Scar Joe or maybe the Scar Joe of a couple of years because she's a go because she's aging out of these these parts. But you, you kind of, you have to have someone who's like pure megawatt. Cast it back in our day, I guess it would have been Catherine Zeta-Jones perhaps. I don't know. Who do you cast this movie with? Who's the star? Who's the, who's, who's, who's the Cary Grant of our time that's, that's age appropriate for the part because George Clooney's too old? Who cast it today? Like right now, you have to make a remake of this movie. Hmm. Well, you've got to give him a more... <clears throat> you still have to go a little bit more defeat, I guess. You don't have a choice because we don't have men's men anymore. Yeah, I mean, I guess you could ask Brad Pitt to do something that's a little bit more on the... Yeah. But you know, but... He's so laid back. You need somebody who's going to have a little bit more fun with it, huh. m- maybe... I mean, what what you do, what for the longest time you've you did in any role like this was just cast Will Smith. Yeah, yeah. And maybe he's aged out too, but he might be appropriate Roger Thornhill age. I mean, just somebody who's charismatic, has that megawatt personality, and you know, we're you know, and can have fun running into in and out of this in that situation. This is this is so boring that I almost am gonna, about to fall asleep as I say this. But the person that actually could pull this off effortlessly, eh, maybe you have to go back ten years to his prime. But Robert Downey Jr. I knew you were gonna say that. Yeah, yeah. and it, it, I, I I'm ashamed that I said it because it is boring. <laughs> it's so boring. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, it is. but he really is uh, <clears throat> just about the modern equivalent in terms of someone who just can shine through a bunch of schlock and just bring his own. They could have Tom Hiddleston do it since we're in the MCU. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. Wouldn't want any of those Chris's to do it. I don't want to no, single Chris. No, Chris's. Oh, Chris Pine, maybe. Yeah, Chris he's not Pine. an MCU Chris, but of all the Chris's, he is the Chris that could maybe. But he's still pretty boring. He's pretty flat. Yeah. Yeah, I don't. Yeah. You don't want to see the the Pine Godot North by Northwest. <laughs> no, sure don't. Wow. That would be really boring. Mm-hmm. Although well, you remember that part where they like take over some other dude's body and I guess we got to see the pine Godot <laughs> and it was terrible Oscar Isaacs yeah sure why not you could ask him it could to be do fun. that I put Oscar Isaacs in anything and I'm happy I don't know whether that's because he's right for the part or just because Oscar Isaacs is always right for every part but well no one will write him a good script yeah nobody ever does but except the Coen brothers yeah <sighs> yep I really kind of hate that movie though Inside Llewellyn Davis. Oh yeah, I hate it's so it's so it. it's so it's so mean. I mean, it's just a deconstruction. Yeah, of, it's, of, it's of, one of their least likable movies, but it does have a certain quality. It has a certain quality. It makes full use of Oscar Isaac's. You know who's just such a great likable actor in my book that I would put him in here, even though he's totally wrong for it in a lot of ways. Is Adam Driver? I would I would like to see the Adam Driver anything, and if you paired Adam Driver with the right chick, you might have something. Yeah, but. What you really should be thinking, what we really should be thinking is who do we cast as our next James Bond? Let's see. And that's the answer. Well. Tell me I'm wrong. No, I think you're right, but I don't know. Because if, if you want masculine verve plus class and, and raw sex appeal, 
mm-hmm. that a guy can get behind. That that's how you cast bond. Yeah, right. Guys want to be him. Girls want to be with him. Yep. <clears throat> you know who actually might still be just age appropriate for this? And could could we get behind the Ben Affleck? I, I had been toying with him. I think he's too old. He's just too old. Yeah. I, and too. And before tired. he was too old, he was too young. Like he he never had that perfect phase yeah. where he was a mature human being and also it's still like that phase that DiCaprio and Damon seem to try to inhabit for forever. Right, that they're both just freshly aged out of these days. Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, uh, DiCaprio in his prime when he was doing all the Scorsese stuff probably could have done this just because he was capable of pretty much anything and he knows how to use his own star star yeah. wattage well. Yeah, even though he doesn't like to do it as much. Well, I don't know who they cast to play the next James Bond. What movies have we seen lately? Is there somebody in Dune? There's nobody in Dune that you want to nope. play Roger Thornhill. I mean, well, we, we already we, said we mentioned Oscar Isaacs, but he's the one of all of them that right. you pick out of that. You're not, I mean, we can do Josh Brolin. No. Jason Momoa. Brolin in his prime maybe could do it, but. But he would bring a pretty different edge to that yeah, material. Yeah, he, he would be very different. You kind of have to go back to our teenage years and uh, give it to like Clooney and uh, Julia Roberts or Clooney right. and Catherine Zeta-Jones. Yeah. I mean, they could do, they could do it effortlessly. Did Clooney and Catherine Zeta-Jones ever do? Oh, they did that weird, terrible Coen Brothers movie. Never saw that one. Well, folks, if you know who should be in North by Northwest, call 1-800-SANITY by Sanity West. Punch that into your phone right now. Whoever picks it up will be waiting to take your information and your credit card so that we can get your information on who you think should be in it. I think we've been defeated. Johnny Depp. Right. Oh, but instead of Johnny Depp. Yeah. The guy that should have been the character that Johnny Depp played in that movie. Oh, Colin. And Colin, the... Colin Farrell. Colin Farrell would be good. He might be aged out at this point too. Yeah. But Colin Farrell was always good in everything. Jude Law, for that matter, would have been good when he was the right age. Mm-hmm. That whole crop of guys that were too handsome. Uh, Ewan McGregor. Current Ewan McGregor might actually be able to do it. I mean, he'd be playing the older side of Roger Thornhill. But yeah, that's it. That's intriguing. The Mandalorian. What's his? Pedro Pascal. Charismatic. Life is good, but it could be better. It's true. <laughs> <laughs> and Gal Gadot as the chick. I'm sticking with it. All right, folks. So I'm giving it 10,000 microfilm statues if you skip that one scene and if you like boring old things. It's pretty good. Oh, and speaking of boring old things, <laughs> I'll tell you who is the opposite of all of those adjectives. As soon as I pull up his name or her name, I will tell you. Oh, of course, it's Keith. Keith is our Patron Choice Award of Awesomeness winner. Wow. And um, you want to tell the people why Keith deserves to have that honor? Yes. It's because if Keith were ever forced to go undercover because a gang of criminals mistook him for a fake FBI um, agent. As one does. It would all make sense in the end. It would all make sense on the end. It would be very coherent. This is true. Well, thank you, Keith, for being awesome. And Thank we, you for being coherent. Yes. Thank you for being coherent. Old coherent Keith, we call you. And... Until next time, folks. You could always take a cold shower. (laughs) Sorry, it's the first one that came out. (laughs) Uh...